You're listening to Metamodernism, a podcast produced by the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 digital media archive elevating the state of the media industry for 2020 and beyond. We are based out of Overcast, San Francisco, California. Welcome to the podcast where we talk about life in the metamodern age and the films, television shows, and music that shaped how we see the world. I'm your host, Alexander Wool. For our inaugural episode, I couldn't have asked for a better guest. Today on the show, we have actor, writer, director, Chris Eigeman. More on him in just a bit. But let's first talk about starting a podcast in 2020. With more podcasts being created now than ever before, why pick up the mic now? I've always felt like there's just too many voices out there, and mine would get lost in the white noise. Because you don't know me, why would you care what I have to say? But I'm just at a point where I can no longer sit idly by any longer. In the metamodern age, I've come to realize there are two modes, consuming and creating. I've spent the better part of the 2010s consuming, and I'm ready to flip the switch to creating. And it's been a long time coming. I've been a student of podcasts as long as podcasts have existed. I was there when podcasts became a new medium in 2004. I was in middle school when I began downloading podcasts and syncing them to my iPod. Podcasts offered a new realm in the pre-smartphone era, and I latched onto them very quickly. I continued to be a consumer of podcasts as they grew from being a niche subculture supported by tech enthusiasts to achieving a wider mainstream audience, with such hits as WTF with Mark Marin, 99% Invisible, Radiolab, Serial, You Made It Weird, The Joe Rogan Experience, and so many more. I've wanted to start a podcast ever since I left college radio in 2014. Freeform College Radio was the purest expression of my love of music and desire to talk about independent media. After college, I spent nearly every free moment curating the Golden Age Collection, which I founded for the advancement and proliferation of DRM-free digital media. And I'm finally at a point where I can step back and enjoy the fruits of my labor. I want to talk about this cultural moment of metamodernism. The year is 2020, and I think it's important to look deeper into what has happened in the last two decades or so as we've progressed from postmodernism into full-blown metamodernism, and not enough people are talking about it. Metamodernism means a lot of things to a lot of people, but for the purposes of this podcast, we will be focusing on metamodernism and how it relates to culture and media. I want to dive into topics like media literacy, peak media, and media as an extension of the self. I want to ask questions like, who is this generation's Marshall McLuhan, and how does one create a balanced media diet? Metamodern media does not exist in a vacuum, and as such, it exists as the culmination of all the media that has come before it. Metamodernism blends the 20th century with the 21st, analog with the digital. It acknowledges that the present cultural moment is built upon and encompasses all of the previous advancements in media and technology. In the metamodern age, there are no gatekeepers, especially with podcasts, which allows for truly independent media to thrive. Authentically independent media is vital to the media landscape, 
allowing an unbiased perspective to serve as the state of the media industry. Gandhi famously once said, be the change you want to see in the world. I felt a calling to create this podcast due to a lack of countercultural representation in the media landscape. I want to fill a void in independent media that shines a light on counterculture. It's no secret that I'm a counterculturalist, but from some perspective, in the 2000s and early 2010s, my fellow hipsters and I witnessed a renaissance of independent film and music. We bought into a dream. A dream of the future where independent music would reach an unprecedented amount of years and people would finally stop listening to the garbage that's on the radio. A world where music blogs and carls from hipster runoff would lead us into a new revolution in the 2010s. But what actually happened is that hipster runoff shut down. Carls went into hiding. Pitchfork and Stereo Gum became more concerned with clicks than artistic integrity and began to cater their coverage to adapt to the mainstream, covering rappers and pop stars as if their music was somehow newsworthy. Altered Zones came and went with little fanfare. The dissolve dissolved almost as quickly as it started. In 2015, Pitchfork was bought out by Condé Nast, only exasperating this issue, widening Pitchfork's coverage to anything Condé Nast thought would generate clicks. Reposts upon repost, tabloid-style reporting, and covering pop trash that previously would have been scoffed at by any self-respecting hipster. In 2016, Univision bought a 40% stake in the AV Club, which became a part of their Gizmodo Media Network. Their coverage of film, television shows, and music is being propped up by affiliate Amazon links and links to unrelated blogs. Truly great cinematic works were being relegated to art house theaters, as the big theater chains clamored to screen the latest sequel, remake, reboot, or CGI headache of a superhero movie, leaving little to no room for indies. Slowly but surely, this indie dream was becoming just that, a dream. Thank God for sites like Gorilla vs. Bear and Brooklyn Vegan, because without them, we might not have independent blogs for authentic indie music. In a meta-modern age, we need sources of truly independent media that are unswayed by any corporate sponsors. As such, I will not be seeking advertisers for this podcast and will attempt to keep it as fiercely independent as possible. I've chosen Vaporwave to set the tone for the show as it was one of the first new meta-modern genres to come out of the 2010s. Vaporwave is more than just a genre, it's an aesthetic and a vibe. I could talk for days about Vaporwave and its cousins Mallsoft, Future Funk, and C-Punk, but I'll save that for another episode. Perhaps I can get Michael Nesmith from The Monkees on to talk about it. He's actually a big proponent of Vaporwave. To the Rolling Stone, he said, I've never heard anything like it. It's the most psychedelic stuff I've heard since psychedelics. I tell everyone I meet about it. But today on the show, we've got Chris Eigeman, and I could not be more pleased to host him. I've admired Chris's work for a while, and that admiration has only deepened the more I dive into his work. In his over 30-year career, he has been a part of some of my favorite films and television shows. Chris rose to prominence through the independent film scene. His on-screen debut was in Witt Stillman's fantastic first film, Metropolitan. His relationship with Witt led to some of the best independent films of the late 80s and 90s. He would then go on to star in the first three Noah Baumbach films, which also rank among the best independent films of the 90s. In the 2000s, he starred in a sitcom from Seinfeld alum Peter Melman. He was a leading man in a string of rom-coms and even got behind the camera, writing and directing two of his own films, Turn the River and Seven in Heaven, both of which are well worth checking out. 
Chris embodies the independent ethos, blazing his own trail through the often unforgiving film industry. He was open and eloquent with his responses and was gracious with his time, as our tight 90 rounded past the two-hour mark. One of the tenets of metamodernism is the interconnected nature of media, and our conversation is a prime example of this phenomenon. If you were to chart a web of all the cultural touchstones we hit upon in this conversation, you would see connections stretching all the way back from Buster Keaton to Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure to Freaks and Geeks and Jojo Rabbit. Just a couple housekeeping things up top. We had originally planned on recording using FaceTime audio, but we ran into some technical difficulties at the last minute and had to record compressed audio over a cell phone connection. So I do apologize about the audio quality up front, but I promise things will sound better in future episodes. I also wanted to give a special thanks to just a couple people. Uh, first to Michael Imami. Michael is an independent filmmaker based in Sweden whom I met during the screening of Metropolitan and Barcelona at the 2020 San Francisco Sketchfest. He and I connected over our shared love of cinema and became fast friends. Without him, this podcast would not exist. He has a new short film called Portraits that's making the rounds in the film festival circuits. So be on the lookout for this film at a film festival near you. I also want to thank Avery Truffleman for her invaluable podcasting tips that she presented in partnership with Today at Apple. Her extensive work in the podcast world with 99% Invisible and Articles of Interest has been an inspiration to me. In my conversation with Chris, we touch upon educators that have made a significant impact in our lives. In my high school and college years, I've certainly had many educators that have changed how I saw the world. Far too many to mention in an intro to a podcast, but I did want to call out Dr. Peter Lutze, who sparked my love of cinema in my college years. He studied under David Bordwell and came to Valpo from Ball State and brought with him a new minor in cinema studies, which I quickly added on to my degree. His classes opened me up to reading films as text and struck a chord within me that would forever change the way I watch and dissect films. And now, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Chris Eigeman. Talk to me about growing up in Denver in the mid-60s and early 70s. What was that like for you? Um, you know, the, the, if, if you grew up in the 70s, 70s was the parent parenting in the 70s, I think, transitioned a lot because those parents were all written. The 50s and the 50s was a, you know, particularly kind of buttoned-down thing. Uh, so when the 70s came around um, and there was a lot of, like, this is the, the height of books about, you know, how to raise creative children and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's sort of how I ended up doing, you know, being encouraged to do stuff like theater or whatever, whatever. So it was a great time to grow up. I mean, it was a, certainly a fun time and I would spend most of my time um, in Denver, but then actually some summers I would work on a ranch up in Montana, which was great. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it was great. And, and so I really have, you know, basically pretty fond memories then of, of, you know, both childhood and Denver specifically. Yeah, that actually uh, kind of answers my next question, which is that uh, were you more of an indoor or an outdoor kid growing up? Oh, no, when you, you know, Denver then and Denver now is uh, super sporty. And so, 
you know, I grew up with a bunch of kids who spent our weekend skiing or rock climbing and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I raised through high school um, and then stopped in college. Nice. And so, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's a, it's, Denver takes its sportiness pretty seriously. Yeah, totally. I actually visited a friend out in uh, Fort Collins uh, a couple of years yeah. ago. First time I was ever out in, in Colorado. Just gorgeous state. Uh, so yeah, no, many, so many cool landscapes. And, uh, you know, if you're an outdoors person, you know, it's an amazing place to be. Yeah, and also a lot of interesting stuff was, you know, culturally was going on, too. Uh, when I was, I don't know, probably 13 or 12, theater for the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, which is a big, you know, complex of a bunch of theaters, uh, was being built, and that was a kind of a cultural anchor for the city. And there was also also little, like, you know, non-equity theaters all over the place, which were, you know, very vibrant and, and really kind of adventurous theater stuff that was great for a young kid to go watch. Yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, so would you say that, uh, being able to attend theater like that at an early age really kind of sparked an interest in acting for you? Well, also because of the seventies, you know, that's also when schools were doing things like making sure kids did some creative something or another. Right. So mm -hmm. you were pretty much obligated to either sing, dance, draw, or act. And since I, of those four, I can only do one. Um, I, I just sort of dropped into acting and, you know, it, it was, it was just, a you know, it was partially the times it was partially, you know, the, the sort of liberalization of, of education to some degree. And then I went away to high school, uh, to Vermont and was doing a lot of theater when I got up there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw you. It's at the Putney school in Vermont. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm really yeah, curious about that. Um, just based on the fact that, you know, you were in Denver and then Montana and now you're, you're up in Vermont. Like what, to, what was the shift? What was drawing you out to Vermont, the school itself or acting classes there? Or? Uh, it was becoming kind of clear that um, I had bounced around in a bunch of schools in Denver mm -hmm. and it looked like maybe uh, it was just maybe better to go to a school on the East Coast. Um, <laughs> and I liked the idea of Putney because it was a farm and a working farm. And so that's how I ended up there. And, you know, I can sing the praises of Denver in 1975 or whatever it was. One of the downsides of Denver in 1975 was it was incredibly culturally monolithic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody I grew up with looked like me dress like me or rather I, I dress like them and so on and so forth. And then when I got out to high school, there were people from everywhere and it, it was, you know, eye opening and, and fantastic. Yeah. So I can I imagine. So yeah, it was great. And I had a really good time up there. Um, and you know, it, it, it took its theater pretty seriously. It took its English pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, like every, you know, everybody you interview will say the same thing one way or the other, which is um, there was probably one teacher who uh, was very encouraging and, and, you know, became kind of a mentor. And that was certainly true with me. Um, and, you know, he, I became, you know, we stayed friends until he died a couple of years ago. Wow. So, and, you know, and he was, you know, very kind of incremental or, or 
purposeful about, um, you know, how, what I was doing, how he was also my English teacher. So, you know, it was, it was just, it was very lucky. It was just super lucky, basically. Well, I, I love that. And I think that, that, you know, even someone like myself has educators that I can point to that have really kind of, you know, made me think about the world in a new way and kind of pivot uh, the way that I learn and, and grow and develop. Uh, so if you don't mind, like we love educators here at uh, Metamodernism. Do you mind giving, obviously he passed away, but I'd love to, to give him a shout out. Oh yeah. His name was David Colicchio. And he was just a, he was, he also, you know, did, he, he wrote, he was translator. Um, he was very good friends with John Irving, the writer, and sometimes yeah. was always around. And he dedicated at least one of his books to, to David. I think Cider House Rules is dedicated to David. Um, and I don't know. It was just a very kind of um, intellectually rich environment to be around. You know, it was it was it was super heady and and um, so yeah, uh, you know, I. Yeah, I had a really good time. Those were, those were very good four years. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's such a unique experience going to a boarding school like that for your high school experience, uh, you know, just kind of being in an environment uh, that fosters that sort of learning and development and can kind of, you know, get you to a place where you feel prepared to take on the world. Yeah, and I think and I think it also um, very quickly, the moment you step on campus, it it wildly widens your horizon in terms of, you know, people you're hanging out with, people, you know, you start looking up to, and, and even in terms of stuff you start reading and stuff you start studying. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was great. So it, it's very clear to me, obviously, you, you studied English and whatnot. You're a well-read person. Uh, you know, you're very, uh, you know, interested in books. So I do have to ask, uh, being that you went to school in the pre-internet era, uh, how intimately familiar did you become with the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I am like, yeah, you can age me by the fact that I'm, I am not, I am, I think like two years too young to be a boomer. Mm -hmm. um, I think I qualify as an excerpt, but also I lived through the death of the Dewey Decimal System and the birth of whatever came after it. And I can't remember what it was called. So that was, um, it, yeah, I, so I, I I knew the Dewey Decimal System really, really well, but that's gone. Like no, nobody uses that anymore. And that when it's, it started dying, I think when I was in college, as I recall, um, which at, at, at the time I think felt seismic as to overstate, but it it was noted. Yeah, I'm sure it was a big shift in how books and and really things were organized in the library right. system there. Uh, so that's that's a major overhaul to to go you know eschew a system of the past and and to go into something new. Um, right. So that makes me wonder specifically going from the Putney School, what kind of drew you out to uh, Kenyon College in Ohio? You know, it's interesting. First of all, David Clifio suggested it. He was like, "You should seriously consider this." But also, I had two friends from Putney who were ahead of me who also went to Kenya, who were also in the theater. One of them is a guy named Neil Pepe, who now runs the Atlantic Theater. He's the artistic director of the Atlantic Theater in New York, and is actually directing on Broadway right now, a production of American Buffalo with Sam Rockwell. Oh, wow. Um, so there was sort of a weird little glide path to, to Kenyon, mm -hmm. which, which uh, I, you know, I took advantage of. 
And at Kenyon, you know, I did I did the predictable. I did English and drama, and and I like Kenyon a lot, um, and I go back uh, pretty frequently. But uh, I've said this before. I, you know, liberal arts colleges are um, can be an incredible opportunity um, to learn stuff, and I often regret having just done you know English and drama, which is two things that I knew I was going to do anyway, and that I knew I was maybe okay in, like maybe I had a talent for it. I really wish I had spent more time studying stuff that I maybe didn't have a complete knack for, because I think that's what liberal arts colleges are built for. I don't think they are supposed to be vocational training schools for the thing that you may go off and do. Like, um, I wish I'd studied, you know, more religion. I wish I'd studied more languages. Um, I wish I'd studied more econ, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but that's, but that's an older person looking back on, you know, younger person's decision. No, but, but I, I love that. It's a, it's a conversation I'll certainly have with my son if he ends up going to a liberal arts college. I'm like, I would urge you not to do the thing you're good at all yeah. the time. But that's that's awesome because I think I think college is that time for you to be able to you know try different things and you know I, yeah. I had some friends who uh, had exploratory majors in college for the first few years oh, wow. you know right. just trying to you know does this fit does that fit uh, do I like right. it here uh, and I think you know I you probably can concur with this which is I would love to just live in academia you know to to be able to yeah. always be the student and to you know take this class and that class you know if there was a way right. I could have extended on and just lived on campus and just audited classes, you know, that would have been amazing. Did you go to school in San Francisco? Uh, no, I went to school at uh, Valparaiso University. It's a small oh, sure. liberal arts college yep. in Indiana. Yep. I yep. I'm, I'm shocked that you know it. Very few people know it. Well, I mean, Kenyon, too, is a pretty reasonably small liberal arts college. So That is true. Yeah, in the Midwest as well. So, yeah, yeah there's, exactly. you know, kind of kindred spirits there. Right. Uh, so that makes me wonder, like, what was it like going to college in Ohio in the mid 80s? Like, what was life like on campus? What were you like? Did you have any clubs or fraternities or anything like that you were involved with? Uh, no, I was not involved with Kenyon does have a fraternity system, but it, I was not involved with it. Um, you know, I, I don't it's hard to comment on because it's all I really knew. I mean. You know, it was a it was it was a lot of '80s music. Obviously, it was a lot of, you know, women were wearing large shoulder bladed blazers. <laughs> um, but and, and and I think in any point of view, it was a pretty liberal time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there it wasn't particularly decadent, but you know, everybody could find ways to get themselves into trouble. Yeah. Um, but you're also, you know, the great thing about Kenyon and the great thing about a lot of liberal arts colleges, but it's probably like, you know, yours is that it's on a, you know, it's on, it's in the middle of nowhere on a hill. And the point is that you're in the middle of nowhere and specifically to learn stuff. Yeah. And, uh, that's great. And, Sometimes that's the worst thing about it because you're in the middle of nowhere on a hill. So, <laughs> you know, that, that can encourage all sorts of behavior. Yeah, um, definitely. But it was, you know, I, you know, I look back on those four years really fondly also. Yeah. I met my, I met my wife there. So. Oh, that's you know, so cool. 
Yeah. So that does make uh, me wonder, uh, you know, because 80s were a big time. You mentioned music and, and you know, different things like that. Um, I'm just intimately uh, fascinated with uh, the impact that these things can have on your life. So if you don't mind, like, what were you into at the time? You know, what were some of your favorite albums or, or artists? Uh, what kind of movies did you go see? Uh, were there TV shows that uh, the campus watched together or anything like that? You know, there wasn't a lot of TV stuff. So for me, the big influence was um, musically, I, you know, my music, most of my sort of um, musical taste was kind of codified in, in high school. So that means, you know, more Neil Young than you're comfortable with. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of like those artists went 70s to 80s. But when I was a little kid, like when I was young, young, that's when Zeppelin had, you know, that's when Zeppelin albums were actually coming out. So I remember, you know, buying those. So those are still in rotation. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's basically every classic rock station you would be listening to, right? I, I there isn't a Steely Dan album I don't own, right? <laughs> um, so there was a lot of that. But for movies particularly, the ones that when I was younger landed hardest on me and therefore I think continue to land hard were the, the sort of seventies movies, right? Like, you know, Friedkin stuff, yeah. you know, like, and, um, and the Altman stuff, certainly even the difficult Altman stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like three women or something like yeah, images. Were, yeah. And so that's, those were the things that for whatever reason, um, kind of landed hardest with me and and I'm still really drawn to that stuff I just that stuff I I I really like yeah no it's it's really cool because you came up in a time where uh, there was this change in the system both with music and with with film uh, you know the the whole art tour thing that was coming up you know all of these young mavericks uh, really kind of right. taking over Hollywood and I'm sure you know you you were exposed to so many different films that for me growing up in the 90s uh, this was, you know, these weren't available. Uh, you know, you could catch them in the theater. Uh, right. And other than that, you know, they weren't readily available on VHS for the most part until things like the Criterion Collection and other, uh, you know, people stepped in and, and wanted to remaster them and get those out to the masses. Right. And also you would get things like um, Bravo, the TV station Bravo originally was really akin to what, or close to akin to what Criterion was doing. Bravo was always showing you know, movies that you couldn't see in the theater. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm also, so I'm cuspy enough that, I, so I'm not a boomer, I'm barely an Xer, I lost the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> to whatever it was. But also, like, the John Hughes film completely passed me by. Like, because I, it felt like that was aimed at an audience that I was slightly older. Yeah. So that stuff, you know, that stuff just missed me. Yeah, um, I, I figured just based on the, the timeline of it all, uh, you know, it seemed like it was aimed at just a few years younger than you, yeah. uh, you know, when that stuff was coming yeah. out. Right. Like, I remember driving to Columbus to see, uh, I, it had to have been on, it could have been a re-release of Elephant Man. Mm -hmm. um, oh, no, sorry. Eraserhead. Um but you had to work really hard to see those films, right? Like you, you know, you had to like get in your car, drive a couple hours to see. You know, yeah, a, a, it wasn't at the uh, the th local theater. You probably had to go to maybe like an art house no. cinema or something like that. Yeah, there there was in Columbus. So, um, so those are the movies that that 
know, will consistently land on me. Yeah. Now, uh, going back to college a little bit, uh, specifically around campus, uh, were you a pretty straight-laced student, or uh, were you somewhat of a, a party animal there? Um, no, you know, I, 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 you know, I like everybody drank. Um, there, there wasn't a huge drug scene at Kenyon, particularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, but it was, oh, you know what it was? I, I'm not quite sure how this worked, but because Vermont, the drinking age was 18. And so the last year of high school, I could drink legally. Oh, and interesting. Then when I got, yeah. And then, but I mean, Vermont back then had all sorts of strange things about it. Like it didn't have a driver's license, it was just a piece of paper. <laughs> um, and then when I got to Ohio, for some reason, I was legal in Ohio. So I was able, to, I was able to go to the bars all the time. And, um, and I'm, I'm not quite, I think I was somehow grandfathered in, but there were a bunch of us. There was a, there was a group of, I remember freshmen who somehow the calendar worked where we could drink. Uh, it was, it was super strange, but there was a bar like, uh, maybe 15 minutes off campus that was attached to a, like a really small nine hole golf course hmm. that the guy who built the, uh, desk for the college or yeah, for the college, uh, he owned. And so all of us, there was a whole group of us and it wasn't just theater people, it was just a, you know, just a group that ended up going out there. And we spent a lot of time out there. Yeah, that's fun. Um, I'm sure lots of college time spent there. Right. It was not, you know, there was not a lot of hell raising. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I tend not to do that. Like, I just don't. um, I'm not a big fan of, like, you know, doing something that somebody else could accidentally be really hurt in. You know what I mean? So, like, drunken games of throwing pianos around is not something I'm going to rush to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of curious specifically around, you know, being that, you know, you mentioned your childhood came out of this creative, you know, kind of post-hippie movement. Uh, I wasn't sure, you know, if there was, you know, pot or psychedelics or anything like that that kind Uh, of were mind-expanding. Yeah, pot was everywhere. Mushrooms were around. Acid, I had no interest in. Um, But, and I don't want to paint my family as particularly groovy because they weren't that groovy at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, that, I mean, the, the, the drugs that, that were around in the eighties, you know, are obvious ones. Right. But yeah, they weren't, they weren't that, they weren't that big at Kenyon, um, really, at, really at all. Uh, they're so, yeah, I, I mean, so, you know, psychedelics, I by and large stayed away from. Certainly yeah. acid, I stayed away from. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a pretty kind of vanilla excursion of the 80s. Yeah, that's okay, because it really, it shaped yeah. you into the person that you are today. Uh, you know, because yeah, yeah. if you had dropped acid maybe your freshman year, uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't have had, you know, the films that you had made, or you know, maybe you would have gone down a different path or something, you know, who's to say? Right. Right. And, and also you can, you know, we've been talking long enough now that, you know, you could envision what I would be like on Coke and yeah. it's not a great, it's not great. You know right. what I mean? It's not great. Nobody needs to be around that. Like 
I, I sort of talk too much and too fast anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, add a couple of lines to that. And it's just not clever. Yeah, not going to be a fun time. Right. So uh, specifically, you know, coming out of college, uh, I know that that was a time where, you know, you had a theater background. You'd done, you know, how many, like a handful of plays at that point, I'm assuming, or at least many more, maybe. Um, I, I worked with a theater company in Denver for a little while, but I was assistant director or something. So, hmm. um, yeah, so after college, the first thing is we went uh, to London because I was going to go to school there for theater. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And it was a thing where it was going to be a summer program that was basically kind of an audition for the actual program. And the school doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. Uh, it was called it was called Weber Douglas. And I had read um Oh fuck, I can't remember the actor's name. Um, um uh, maybe this will be worth it, maybe it won't. Um Anyway, I had read a book called The Year of the King um, by Anthony Shear, who's a wonderful actor. And it was, it's, a, it's actually, if, if anyone's ever interested in like a book about what it is to be an actor, I consider Year of the King to be pretty much the defining book. Hmm. Um, and it's about his, he was doing King Lear, I think at the Old Vic. Um, and he didn't break his leg. He ripped the tendon out of it. So he had to do it on court. Anyway, it's a journal of that production of Lear. And, um, he had gone to Weber Douglas. Okay. Somehow, I think I saw like a video of the performance or something, like maybe a scratch tape of the the performance. Anyway, I was like, well, he went to Weber Douglas. Maybe I should go to Weber Douglas. So I went to Weber Douglas. (laughs) And my then girlfriend, now wife, went to, London and we she was able to do word processing right Mm -hmm. and and so she was able to get a really good job at magazines who were trying to figure out how to use word processing to get their magazine you know get their magazines out the door yeah so she was able to make bank which was great I went to Weber Douglas and reasonably quickly got tossed out of Weber Douglas. But getting thrown out of, of acting school in London is, it's super delightful. It's charming and lovely. They're, (laughs) they're, they're so, they're very, very sweet about it. You don't really realize you've been kicked out. And I, I think it was then my girlfriend who said, you know, you, you've actually been thrown out of the school. And I was (laughs) like, I don't know. I mean, they kept saying nice things like they wish me the best of luck and so on and so forth. She's like, yeah, that's done. It's so funny uh, you mentioned that because, uh, you know, not to jump too far ahead of the timeline, it almost reminds me of uh, the character that you played in the girls pilot uh, where you had to let go of Lena Dunham, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. without actually saying, you know, it's like best of luck on future projects and things like that. Right. I hadn't even thought of that. That's true. It's um, funny. That's very similar. So then I stayed in London for a while. We stayed in London for a while. Um, and I was uh, working in a bar in a theater and, then we were sort of running out of money and so we were going to call home and see if we get some money. And that, that was like literally, I think the day we decided to bite the bullet and call our respective families and see if we could coax some money. That was the, the day of the stock market crash, which would have been 89. 
right? Yeah, Black Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so then we were like, okay, let's just cut cut bait and get out of here. Yeah. So you know, we we screwed around in Europe for a couple more weeks, and then we came to New York. Uh, we got an apartment in New York, and I started parking cars at, the, at a restaurant in New York. Hmm. So it's it's so interesting to hear that that journey. I mean, obviously, you know, you've had quite a journey, you know, going from this place to that place and to to London and back. Uh, so coming into New York, uh, specifically now, uh, was this your first time living in New York then? Uh, um, yeah, although I spent a lot of time in, in New York because it's both close to Vermont and close to Ohio. Yeah. So I would spend, I, I spent a lot of time in New York. Um, and, you know, but, but to show up here as an actor when you're, well, whatever I was trying to um, was, you know, that's, it's the worst time. It's the absolute worst time to show up. It, it, to be an actor when you're 23 in New York or L.A. or anywhere, for that matter, is the worst because that's the highest, that, that population is the largest of, you know, attrition hasn't set in. So, yeah. you know, it's just a huge, you're just one in an endless pool of, of factors. Yeah, it must be um, tough so to kind of break through. Yeah, you know, it's, it's brutal. And, you know, you, you have to be, you know, you have to be good and lucky and lucky again. Just have to keep being lucky. So, you know, I did a bunch of off off Broadway plays that were, I think, by and large, terrible. <laughs> um, the first time I got paid to act was um, a production of the Luxie Blues, which is a yeah, the Mike Nichols Neil play. Simon. No, Neil Simon, but oh, Neil Simon, yeah, uh, Mike I, Mike Nichols directed the film. I, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, with Chris Walken, right? Yeah, and. Um, um, uh, Matt Broderick, I uh, think. Yeah, Broderick definitely did it. Broderick did all of his stuff. Um, but it was in the Poconos, and it it was, I mean, it was a production that only a mother could love. <laughs> and and truthfully, even my mom was a bit on the fence with it. But it was, but I, it was one of the most fun experiences of my entire life. And it was also, you know, who was in it was Noah Emmerich. Oh wow! Right, so Noah and I, and so when and when we see each other, we both just you know reminisce because all we it was it was you know you'd wake up in the middle of the afternoon, you'd go do a matinee, you'd play a, you know two hours of poker, then you'd do the show, then you'd do the evening show, then you'd start you know barbecuing, and you'd stay up until like four o'clock in the morning. It was great. Um, it sounds so, like the life. It really was. I mean, yeah. And Noah and I are like, it was still to this day, it was still the best job in show that we've ever had. <laughs> um, and yeah, so then, and then eventually, you know, I auditioned for Metropolitan a bunch of times. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I am it, curious, uh, where did you even like hear about Metropolitan in the first place? I know that that was your first uh, on screen role there. Uh, where did you yeah. even find out about the casting for that? There was, there was, I think there still is, um, a sort of weekly mag, uh, newspaper called Backstage that just listed auditions, basically. <laughs> and I was living in Soho, and the audition was literally like four blocks away. And, and that really was incredibly lucky also, because when I got there, it was just 
overspilling with people, right? There was, I mean, cause the, I'm sure the casting call was like, I don't know, anybody who could reasonably play a recent college graduate. <laughs> and, you know, the, the line was just forever. And then eventually that number, they were just giving out numbers and people were having to wait for, you know, six, seven hours just to get in. But I could go back home. So I grabbed my number and went back to my apartment. <laughs> um, and then went in and did the first audition. And then, you know, ultimately I did not get the part. Um, somebody else did. But then I guess maybe during the first day or two of shooting uh, with someone who directed it, sort of reconsidered and gave the guy who had my part another part and then called me and then uh, I went and did it. Incredible. I mean, it's, it is insane how many things had to fall into place for that to happen. Yeah. Um, but what an amazing debut film for you to be in and to showcase your talents. I mean, absolutely incredible. It is, well, I mean, still holds one up. Of the, uh, yeah, I think that movie does hold um, One of the things that was an incredibly, another lucky thing for, I think, everybody in the film was we were very sure that nobody would see the film because <laughs> it, it's such an unlikely topic, right? Like, mm -hmm. overly overly privileged Upper East Side kids um, holding forth and wondering about their future and, and, you know, talking about, you know, they're, they're pretty um, non-life threatening problems. Yeah. And so I, and, and pretty much everybody else was like, well, nobody can see this. So that the good news is why not do this? the way we really think it should be done. Like, let me, let me do this part the way I think it should be done. Cause I know that, that there would be, if I really thought people were going to see this, uh, I think I wouldn't have swung so hard. I think I would have played it as safe as humanly possible. And I think it would have actually really kind of sucked. So it was a real blessing that we figured nobody would ever see this thing. And it's kind of ironic too, because, uh, you know, we had actually met at the uh, sketch fest screening of right. both uh, Metropolitan and Barcelona and, you know, you and Taylor Nichols and I'm sure even Wit probably thought that uh, not a whole lot of people would ultimately, uh, you know, see the film. Uh, but oh, here no, we are no. 30 years later Wit. and, you know, right. got a theater filled with people itching to see these movies, you know? Yeah. yeah. Wit, trust me, Wit um, always believed that uh, this thing would, you know, go on to be nominated for an Academy Award. He was he always had the faith. None of us did. <laughs> yeah. And it's incredible, too, because, you know, getting into independent film in the late 80s, uh, you know, it was not the glamorous industry that it is today. Uh, no. You know, it was a very different time for independent pictures. And uh, I'm just kind of curious what it felt like coming up, because you, I think, are emblematic of a certain generation of independent filmmakers. Uh, and I think that, you uh, you know, you came up in a time where uh, there wasn't a direct path like there is today. I mean, obviously, Sundance right. was just coming to the fold and whatnot. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about being involved with uh, such a low-budget independent production, uh, you know, in the late 80s like that? Well, the thing that, that really changed everything for everybody um, was Sex Life Videotape. And because that movie, you know, went to Sundance, I think it might have been like... It was close to when Metropolitan was at Sundance, but I think it was after. It sold for a lot of money. 
it went on to have a huge theatrical life and it made a lot. And, and so suddenly that, and but certainly Metropolitan and some other films had a hand in that too, that it just created this, this really vibrant business that, that really didn't exist before. The idea that you can put together financing for a film at, you know, whatever, 2 million bucks, 1 million bucks, get it to a film festival, have it sell, everybody makes their money back and then have it get, you know, get into the theaters. And so there was a, there was a little bit of a gold rush then about it where, you know, money was actually much easier to come by then, I think, than it is now for this kind of stuff. Um, and, and so there were times when I could do like two or three movies a year, you know, small <laughs> movies and some, some of them were, were great and some of them didn't quite work, but, you know, you could just always be doing it. You wouldn't make any money, but yeah. you, you would always be, you would always be working. And it seems to me like it was kind of the love of the art of making movies, uh, you yeah. know, over anything else. And I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is this uh, intersection of art and commerce that films seem to exist at, you know, because obviously for audiences, it is a form of entertainment. Um, but for the people who are making them, it is a business as well. So, right. you know, it's, right. it is this juxtaposition of, hey, we want to make something that is creative and artistically sound. Uh, but at the same time, we do have to be able to market this and, and try to make right. our budget back. Yeah, and that was, that was sort of sorting itself out. Um, you know, it was, it was the market hadn't been tapped yet, right? So everybody was trying to scramble and figure out well, what kind of films do you sell, what kind of films are going to be, are really going to work. And so then, and you got some just amazing films out of that time, like Living in Oblivion or, yeah. you know, stuff like that, where, which is a very unlikely film, but it's a super classic one, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and it was just a, I don't know, it just felt like a, a, a very alive time. Indeed. And I and looking back on it, I mean, that is such a time that was rife with independent voices and, and people who were creating stories uh, that the studios may not have put money towards. I mean, just looking at Metropolitan, right. um, I was actually talking to my wife about this specifically with the look and the feel of the film. Um, you know, it does feel a little out of place at a time. Uh, you know, it's something that yeah. if you were to watch it, it almost doesn't feel like it is in a post Miami Vice and post Back to the Future world. You know, those those films don't ever, you know, factor into any of that. You know, the whole 80s aesthetic yeah. is not there. And it feels like it's a time capsule uh, for this bygone era. And it's a really unique film as a result of that. I think it stands alone because of that. I think so, too. I mean, I, I it and that, again, was is credit to both. Uh, with the director and John Thomas, the, the cinematographer, they were able to sort of frame it up um, as a thing out of time. Like it, this was a few years ago. I mm -hmm. think is the way the film even opened. And so, yeah, I, that, I think that's really you know a, a masterful uh, notion. Yeah. So coming out of uh, Metropolitan, I know that uh, Witt had revealed that he originally written Barcelona uh, before Metropolitan, um, but he found that uh, making uh, you know Metropolitan was actually an easier debut film. Uh, so after the release of Metropolitan, uh, did he tap you right away for uh, Barcelona, or was there a little bit of a gap for you? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't actually remember. I I think the way it went is. Pretty quickly, Taylor and I knew that we were probably going to do Barcelona. But Barcelona took a few years to get up on its feet. Um, 
So, but I think, I think we knew reasonably quickly. So that, cause I actually was doing a bit of research and there are a fair number of your films that are considered to be, uh, what they call lost media, uh, you know, media that was made and then just hasn't ever found the light of day through a traditional, uh, it, uh you know, release system. Uh, it so, all sort of went down in the analog sunset. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate because there seems like a lot of really interesting, uh, roles that you've taken on. Uh, one that I was kind of curious about was the obit writer. Uh, which was the short with uh, oh, Mira Servino and yeah. Norman Mailer and whatnot. I can't find it right. anywhere, uh, but could you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So I got, yeah, I mean, right. That's why I met Mira first and, you know, certainly introduced her to Wit um, for Barcelona and Norman. And Norman Mailer, like, that was, I just wanted to work with Norman Mailer. And it was also, it was shot by a really talented cinematographer who's, I think, still working, but I can't remember her name. It, uh, I want to say Nancy Savoka, but Nancy Savoka is a director. Nancy hmm. Schreiber, Nancy Schreiber, who hmm. is really, really good. Um, and we shot it on a soundstage out in Staten Island, built in a theater. And I, to be honest, I don't know if I've ever seen it. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, and I, you were talking about like things that have fallen into the, or didn't make it across the digital bridge. Uh, I was like, well, I'm sure I have it. But Obit Writer, I don't think I fucking have. That's interesting. I'll go... I'll go take a look and see if I have it. Yeah, because there, there are certain films that are there. You know, you'd have to go and buy them on DVD from some random distributor or whatnot. But this one, I couldn't even, you know, find anywhere. But then again, it was a short film, about 23 minutes in length. So, right. uh, you know, those don't always see the releases as standalone. Sometimes they come in like a package or something like that. So, right. uh, you know, after having worked with Whip for, for two films, uh, how did you link up with uh, Noah Baumbach? So... Kicking and Screaming, which actually used to be called Fifth Year. Fifth Year was like, it was sort of around, it had been around for a while. I had known about it. I hadn't really read it, but I knew about it because it was sort of one of those scripts that like all the cool kids were kind of getting attached to. Yeah. Um, so I knew Parker was in it. I knew Josh Hamilton. I think I knew Josh was going to be in it. Um, but I, that film, I think, went up and went down a couple of times. Hmm. Um, and if memory serves, it will, it, it ended up at Trimark and then Noah called me and we were talking on the phone, talking about, you know, he's like, read it and see what you think. So I read it and I really liked it. That was incredible. Fun. And, and, and there were just some, you know, just, just gems in the film, just, just a beautiful, beautiful thing that I, if I were to do the movie, I just was like, I hope I can live up to this. Right. I mean, yeah. Certainly, the bow hunting scene. Like, you oh yeah, really. I mean, on the page, that thing's fantastic, and so you just do not want to screw that up. Um, but there were a lot of those. Mm-hmm. I think we talked on the phone like maybe two times, and hmm. then, you know, they invited me out, and I came out, and I, you know, uh, I was going to do part, and but I thought it was funny because I went to a dinner for like the whole cast. And I had no idea which one was Noah. Like I just remember <laughs> sitting, down at the, sitting down at the table and all these guys knew each other. Everybody knew each other. You know, Olivia Davo, Parker, everybody knew each other because they'd been around each other. And Cara Buono. And I, I just kept looking. I knew Josh, but anybody else, anybody else, any other male, I, I was like, this could be Noah, that could be Noah. I don't know. <laughs> and I made it like halfway through the dinner before I was like, I just need to know which one's Noah. Um, that's so funny, <laughs> but, 
but that was a really fun shoot. It was a, it was a sincerely fun shoot. I mean, that movie seemed like there was such a camaraderie between the characters. Uh, you know, I, I assume that you all got along, uh, you know, behind the scenes as well. Uh, yeah. But it's it's one of those things that uh, just like The Graduate, you know, the film, uh, it, it really perfectly captures the post-collegiate life. You know, there's something so uh, inescapable about it. And it, it I could watch that movie so many times and it just puts me back into that place in time. Uh, we are wondering what what to do with your life. Can I stick around in college for longer? Like that is right. just it perfectly captures that. Yeah. So coming yeah, off of that. Uh, I know that uh, after that you also uh, worked with Noah again for for Mr. Jealousy, uh, and that was another uh, great great movie of his. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the work that went into that? Well, well, that was you know that was so I I had done just a bunch of independent film by that point, and I really had to make some money at some point. Like my wife was a journalist or a producer, uh, producer journalist at CNN, but this was back when CNN was just a tiny little network. And so nobody was making enough money. And so I was like, I, I got to go do television. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was doing a bunch of pilots. And then I ended up getting a development deal to actually write a pilot. And I asked Noah if he wanted to write it. So Noah and I went out to California and we were writing a pilot for NBC. And at the same time, he was getting Mr. Jealousy up and going. And then then nothing came from that pilot, but, and then we went and did Mr. Jealousy, but nothing came from that pilot, but it did start me on the road of, of working television, hmm. um, which I, you know, I liked, I liked it a lot. So that was, you know, how that, that kind of went. And actually we did another one after that called Highball. Yeah. I want to actually know about that. I, I've, I've done my research. I watched it actually. I was able to hunt it down online. If you can believe it, I, I bought a copy right. on DVD uh, I felt like I was committing some sort of crime against the arts uh, by buying it, uh, just based on the fact that it seems like Noah has uh, removed his name from it. And yeah, uh, when you, it. yeah, when you buy it online, it actually comes in a burned DVD uh, with a blank white label. Uh, it is very oh. sketchy, and uh, sketchy. yeah, when I when I bought it, it actually uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a finished copy of it, or at least the DVD. Um, but there are some scenes where they loop the film like it's like the the studio maybe got like a half finished version and uh, there's all these glitchy parts to it. It's it's very strange, uh, but it was it was a delightful film. I mean, I enjoyed it, but uh, I've, I've never seen it. I should probably hunt it down. Um, it was fun to make, uh, but, you know, it, it was fun to work. I mean, I Bogdanovich had been in jealousy also, but I like working with Peter. Yeah. And, I'm so um, curious about that because, you know, coming in as an independent uh, filmmaker, I mean, Peter Bogdanovich came out of, uh, you know, a time in the late 60s and early 70s uh, right. where he represented a certain uh, generation of independent filmmakers that really kind of, uh, you know, pressed forward in terms of what right. film should be. Uh, so I'm curious what it was like working with him on the set of these films. He's, I mean, he's exactly how you think he is. He is, he knows, he knows pretty much everything and will happily tell you stories about any of the people, any of the filmmakers that he's interviewed for his book, or if you need another Orson Welles story. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's delightful hanging out with Peter. Like I really like it. Um, uh, so he was always, he was always fun to be around. Um, it's funny. Highball. I hadn't really thought about highball in a long time. Um, but I, I don't know. It was a long time ago, but I have nothing. I, you know, I have a certain fondness towards it. It was, 
So it may be just the internet legends here, but rumor has it that Highball was made with the leftover budget from Mr. Jealousy, and it was made in just a couple of days. Uh, do you know if I that think, is true? I, I think that's true, yeah. I think that is true. I, I think that they had, like, because we were shooting film then, too, so I think he was saving short ends from... Um, that was another way, by the way, back in the you know 90s, people were making films. They would get film from, they, they'd find commercial directors or even commercial directors themselves. You know, commercials would burn through film left and right, right? They would mm-hmm. just burn millions of feet of, of film a day, but they would have, the film that they didn't use in a reel would usually be cut and that would be considered a short end. And that would be spooled and put in a tin and just sort of left there. Sometimes it would be thrown out, but filmmakers would sort of scavenge those short ends and cobble them together and get enough footage to shoot a film. But sometimes, you know, sometimes it would not all be the same stock. So Hmm. sometimes you'll see films where you're like, why is the color grade so weird in this scene? Like, well, probably because it was a short end from a different stock. Um, Anyway, so that's what I think he did. I think he had a little bit of money left over. He had a script and he had some short ends. And so there was the film. That's fascinating. I, I love hearing that inside baseball stuff, kind of behind the scenes of exactly how right. that came to be, um, just because it does show that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a creative vision and you have you know, even scraps of equipment, you know, you can kind of right. piece something together and, and make it work. And the the film itself, Highball, uh, very much feels like, you know, there, it's, it's all contained within basically an apartment there and it shows yeah. different parties uh, through, you know, different different times. So it seems like it would have been a fun shoot to be a part of just as a way to kind of, you know, carry over from Mr. Jealousy and kind of, you know, have that camaraderie with the cast. Right. Yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, I got to wear a lizard suit. Yeah, that, that. that was also uh, quite memorable. Yeah. Ali Sheedy was in. I just ran into her at a dog park a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, it was, I haven't seen her since. So. It's interesting because she played herself in the movie uh, versus some of the I, other know, characters. I, I know, and I can always remember Chris, um, who the other Chris, who actually co-wrote it, I believe. Um, and when and he he did that scene. I, I have no idea if it's still in the movie, but when she walked in and he was pretending to be cool and not know that she's who she is and that she's a movie star. And so he was like, she, he, is it she, he, is it, <laughs> and I, and I just thought like, and somehow he kind of pulled that off. So that's now all I can think of when I see Ali She. That's so funny. But uh, it's, it's so interesting to kind of see your, your career grow and bloom on screen because you had these great relationships uh, with these directors that were coming up at the same time as you. Uh, so you were able to kind of establish yourself with these directors and really uh, kind of bring these relationships uh, to different films and to portray different characters and whatnot. Um, so specifically, right. you know, after having worked with Wit for, for a couple of films, um, I know you had kind of mentioned specifically that you had thought that the world had had enough of the Wit Stillman, Chris Eigeman combo. And I'm kind of curious why you came to that conclusion and, and how you and Wit to, had decided to, you know, maybe take a breather for a little bit. Um, yeah, it, 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 it was actually sort of a simple thing that we both came to. I'd helped him, I'd helped him a little bit in casting, um, for disco, but, but we both just agreed, like, you know, we've done this twice. 
seem to go pretty well. Let's just not press our luck, shall we? <laughs> um, and I think that was always sort of the reigning theory. But then he had um, cast another actor in the role that I ended up doing. And I honestly don't know who that actor is. Um, I think it was somebody that Wit uh, wanted and the studio really wanted. Mm -hmm. And then that actor fell out and fell out really late. Um, and so again, I got the call of like, you know, come on, please, let's just do this. Yeah. And then it, then it becomes a different thing. I mean, then it's, you know, before we were making a choice sort of personally and artistically to like, we don't, you know, we don't need to do this one more time. Mm -hmm. Then it, but, but when Wit was giving me that call, it was a very different situation because the movie's about to fall apart. Yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, that's different. I'll show up for that. You know, and I'm so glad you took the role because it is one of my favorite performances of yours. I mean, obviously oh, you've fine. done amazing work, uh, but that film in particular uh, just has this amazing combination of just like whip smart dialogue coupled with these groovy disco scenes that you really don't see that that combination uh, in a film. And it was uh, actually the first of Wit's films that I actually had seen. Uh, and it really struck me as a writer's film. Like you could tell that this is somebody who is literate, somebody who uh, has opinions and uh, it very much felt uh, like it was a film being written by a writer, not by a studio, yeah. not by somebody who just wanted the plot to go this way and that way. And it really stuck out in my mind. And, you know, having gone back through the rest of his filmography, uh, you can definitely see that, that he uses you and other characters as a vehicle for his voice. And I think it really kind of makes your performance stand out. Uh, that was a fun one to do. I had a good time. Um, you know, I liked working with all those people. Kate Beckinsale, because I think, her, I think it was Kate's first American movie. I think she'd just done Cold Comfort Farm before that. Um, Mac Aston. Uh, Matt Ross and I became very good friends and remain really good friends. Yeah, Matt's, um, Matt's I, phenomenal. Matt is, I mean, I remember, you know, the first couple days with Matt, and I was like, this guy is fucking amazing. I mean, I, I was, I was really stunned at what he was doing. So, and he's gone on to, to become a, a great filmmaker in his own life. Yeah. I mean, he's doing some, some really cool stuff and obviously he's uh, been all over Silicon Valley, but uh, a couple right. of years ago, he even directed a thing over at the Hollywood Bowl. It was a production of uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It was this whole oh, really? big production. Yeah, Weird Al was in it, and uh, it was it was crazy. But yeah, he directed over at the Hollywood Bowl. It was just a one-night-only performance. But uh, So I'm kind of curious, because you had mentioned previously that uh, you had been a part of some pilots and whatnot, and I know that uh, pretty much in any actor's life, you know, they're going to go through pilot season after pilot season, uh, yeah. just hoping for something to get picked up. Uh, can you talk about any pilots that you were a part of that you really had hoped uh, kind of gotten off the ground just based on the fun that you had on set or the cast and crew that was assembled for that pilot? Yeah, there was a there was a pilot called Gene Pool that Matthew Carlson did. And it was me and Jennifer Westfeld and uh, Tobolowski. And it was a really good cast. And it was a it was a it was a really fun premise, I thought, of you know, to like um, scientists basically. And, but I, I was a young father. Um, I, I, I don't know. It was, uh, that I, I was like that one, you know, there sometimes, you know, you do a pilot and you're like, ah, I don't know, maybe this shouldn't get picked up. 
Um, but that one, I was always like, damn, that I thought really should have. You know, pilot season is such an. I, I, you know, I haven't gone through it in a long time, but um, it's just such a crazy, crazy. I remember loving. It. I loved it. I loved it. It was my favorite time of the year because, you know, it was like it was like the wild west. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting up. time to be an actor for sure. Yeah, and and it was also just brutal. Like, yeah. and, and it was not. You know, what I liked about it was it wasn't trying to pretend not to be brutal. Like it, it is brutal and. You know, the network makes it um, as incredibly difficult for you as humanly possible as an actor. And they put you under more pressure than you will ever be in <laughs> any other circumstance. Um, and they do it because they're at that time, now everything has changed. But at that time, you know, the network was, was committing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to some degree on you. And if, if, they see you crack during pilot season or during the whole process of, you know, going to network and testing and going to the studio and testing. And if they see you crack, they're like, forget it. He cracked. So I don't care how good he is. He cracked. So no. Hmm. And they do it purposely. Um, and I sort of liked the honesty of that. I'm like, I get it. That's fair. Yeah. Let's see how hard you can make it. Um, I remember, but also you would, I remember, you know, I remember reading Friends and thinking, holy shit, this is going to be a huge hit. Mm-hmm. And and going in for Chandler and not even getting close. And I was like, wait, let's just rethink this. How did I not even get close? I, I you know, you don't have to give me the job, but I, I should be kind of close. Yeah, totally. And no, I wasn't. And then, and I don't think I'm talking out of school, Matt Perry, who, you know, I kind of knew. Because, oh, because he had auditioned, I think this is right, he had auditioned for Kicking and Screaming, for my part. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and then he was like, no, I just went in and did Chris Eigenman and got the part. I'm like, well, look, dude, I went in and did Chris Eigenman and did get the part. So, obviously, you did a little bit better than that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but it was clear that, that that show was going to be a huge hit. It's it's funny because I think that as uh, somebody who who writes themselves and somebody who has been around the block in terms of films, like I think you can kind of generally get that sense just by based on reading the screenplay. Uh, you can kind of say, yeah, I think this is going to be big or I want to be a part of this. Um, so specifically with some of the pilots that you were involved with, you know, in my research, there were a lot of them that I was really interested in. And the problem is that when the studio doesn't pick it up, these pilots just go by the wayside and you can't you can't yeah. watch them. So. Uh, you know, specifically for the gene pool, uh, that was actually one of the ones I was interested in checking out. Uh, it was produced by the WB, but you know they just yeah. don't have public access to that sort of stuff. So no. it is it is a shame because I'm sure there's some really great uh, not only you know pilots for things, but also performances of actors and and you know dialogue that was written uh, that just never sees the light of day, which is a real shame. It is. I mean, it's it's too bad because you would think now, given the fact that you know. There's so many places to to show shit. Yeah, that stuff. It would be nice if that stuff were around, but you know. But on the other hand, they made at that time so many pilots. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't just you know a dozen pilots a year. It was there were fifty, sixty pilots. So, Insane amounts. Uh, yeah. 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 And so, you know, you're sort of like, well, okay, that's, that's good. I wish, I wish I'd see it. I mean, I also remember that with Gene Pool, that 
Robin Bartlett was in it. Oh yeah, and she's great. I, she, I, she was, she was an actor who I have just have always admired. Like I just always loved her. I'd seen her in New York stage plays, and I remember. But then I remember she was in um, Postcards from the Edge, and she mm-hmm. was uh, Meryl Streep's roommate in the hospital after Meryl Streep gets her stomach pumped. And they're both like in the sort of psych ward of the hospital. And then uh, Shirley MacLaine comes in to see Meryl and like all hell is about to go bust up. And Robin's like, I'm going to go weave a basket. And it was just something about like the delivery that I was just forever in love with her. I was like, that woman can fucking sell a joke. Yeah. Um, so I was super thrilled that she was that she was in it. That's so so uh, great, and and let the record show that is the third Mike Nichols film we've name checked here in this podcast so far. Oh, uh, yeah, it's crazy how that works. One hundred percent true. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of curious because you know up until you know the in the early '90s you were mainly doing doing film stuff, and then you started doing yeah. pilots and whatnot. Uh, what was it like shifting gears to doing pilots and kind of more television work for networks? Uh, was that a different feel for you? Um, you know, it, it's still the same thing, right? You're still just at your acting, but the hours are a lot better. Um, and the pay is a hell of a lot better. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's in some regards, it's very, very different. In other regards, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was, I was very glad when it's like, you know, got picked up. I, I wanted that picked up very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Peter Melman and I like the cast. Um, and you know, it, it, didn't it just didn't quite work um maybe we were on the wrong network maybe you know there's a million things that that could have could have done it but it just didn't quite get there and it's a uh, shame that said, yeah it is but it was two years and it was a really fun two years yeah it's it's one of those shows that again is is difficult to find you know i actually uh found a website online that claims to be selling it um, but I believe it's a very similar setup where they're basically burning it to a DVD, uh, some yeah. sort of like VHS pirated copies or something like that. Right, so, right. you know, it's unfortunate because, you know, it did last for two seasons and, uh, you know, it is something that I think fans would really like to get their hands on if, uh, if it ever were to be released by ABC. Uh, but now with this whole Disney Fox merger, I'm not quite sure where that all ends up. No, I don't know either. And, and I agree. I would, I would love to see it. I mean, I'm still in contact with Peter Melman and, and I think he's, you know, he's a really terrific writer. And it was also, you know, that was, that was the sort of first post Seinfeld, Seinfeld sitcom, right? Seinfeld, yeah. Seinfeld introduced the pilot. He was, you know, warming up the audience for us when we shot the pilot. I think our first rehearsal was maybe like just, just days after the final, Seinfeld aired or final Seinfeld shot one of the two, which was like a national holiday. Oh yeah. California. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, and it was the same crew and it was the same director and it was, the, and a lot of those writers like David Mandel was around who's mm-hmm. on Veep. And, yeah. Um, I don't think Larry David, I don't know if Larry David was around. He was around, but I don't know if he was like writing on it. And then I, the, the writing staff was great. So, yeah. Um, and it seemed like yeah. you had assembled just a, such a good uh, group of people to be around. You know, I was looking around and it uh, looks like, 
you had Andy Ackerman, who had, uh, you know, of course, done Seinfeld and later went on to do right. some Curb episodes. And you even had right. uh, John Fortenberry, uh, who yeah. I, I knew, at least growing up, I used to love Night at the Roxbury. It's such a ridiculous yep. Saturday Night Live movie. And uh, yep. it must have been really cool kind of working with these people and just kind of making this this little show of yours and then getting it out to everyone on something as big as ABC. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, no, it's it amazing. Yeah. It was great. So yeah, Fortenberry, who I think is out here now in New York, um, it was it was just a really it was a fun time. And also, I mean, truthfully, it was just nice to have made a pilot that got picked up finally. Yeah, because it's it's tough, you know. Like you said, it is it is a you know a really tough business, and especially going through pilot season after pilot season, uh, you know, that's got to probably take a toll on you emotionally. You know, yeah. getting all of your hopes, you know, oh, this is going to be the one. I'm, I can't wait for this, and then just to see them not do it. And I think it really goes to show uh, just where television was at in the nineties in terms of, yeah. you know, throwing a bunch of shit up against the wall and hoping something sticks, you know, and trying to find the right thing. And I think that in this era of metamodernism with, with peak media, you know, so many different places making so many different shows uh, you would think that at least in this day and age stuff would stick around for a little bit longer. So, you know, if we had made the show, uh, if you'd made the show now, uh, you know, maybe it would have really found the audience that it was looking for uh, as opposed to being, you know, on network TV or something. Right. You, you, I would always sort of say, like, you know, the lessons of Seinfeld, the lessons of Cheers um, are persistently unlearned. Um, the, you know, Cheers was at the bottom of the ratings for years. I'd say two years. Um Seinfeld, same thing, right? Seinfeld was just barely surviving. But then, you know, the shows sort of find their legs and then the network supports it a little better and then a better time slot is found and then, you know, Seinfeld went on forever and Shears went on forever and were, you know, cultural touchstones. But the idea of, like, give it a chance, like, let it grow a little bit. Let's see. I still think there's something there. I mean, if you ever get a chance, watch the pilot for Cheers. It oh, yeah. Is, I've seen it. it yeah. Is, it's incredible. It's incredibly dark. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the kid trying to buy a beer and claiming to be a Vietnam veteran. Like, oh, yeah. What the, what the hell? Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And I think it goes to show kind of where we're at right now in terms of media versus where TV shows were at then. And I think that uh, specifically when it comes to these sorts of programs, I think that uh, the studios, at least back then, would give it a little bit more time to find its legs. I think yeah. nowadays, uh, you know, they want that instant hit. You know, there have been so many shows, at least in the early 2000s, you look at like Freaks and Geeks, for example, uh, you know, a show that really uh, didn't quite find its ground in season one. Um, and that was just canceled rather than, OK, let's go for season two. Let's see where this goes. Uh, so I think there's a lot of shows that are relegated to, to that um, just based on the well, fact that maybe they were in the wrong time slot or they were on the wrong network yeah. or something like that. I can bemoan the cancellation of it's like, you know, and I can bemoan the cancellation of a bunch of shows. However, the cancellation of Freaks and Geeks, Freaks and Geeks that, that is actually a crime. That was actually a national crime. <laughs> yeah. Um, that show, I, I, I mean, th th that that is an actionable 
uh, thing to do. But yeah, it's funny because uh, Paul Feig uh, grew up in Michigan, uh, kind of near me, uh, where where I was from in Michigan, and it just perfectly encapsulated the. Uh, you know, I wasn't alive in the 80s, but, uh, you know, seeing, you know, in the 2000s what it was like to go to high school in the 80s, like it just, there was everything about that show just felt so natural and uh, not forced in terms of, you know, we're adults playing high schoolers and these are our, you know, everyday drama of our lives and things like that. And, you know, I think it really stands out as a result of that. Um, so it is yeah. a shame to, to see that go. Um, speaking of Fox sitcoms in the early 2000s, uh, you had a great part in Malcolm in the Middle. How were you tapped for that? Was that something that was written specifically for you, or did you uh, audition for that uh, role of uh, Lionel Herkimer? No, no, no. No. Um, so the guy who created it, Linwood Boomer, had he had done a pilot together, which was a British show called uh, Red Dwarf, that did not get picked up. But Linwood and I you know, stayed friends and everything. And then he got Malcolm going. And I, I think Malcolm was on for, you know, maybe a year or two years before I ever came on it. And literally Linwood was like, you know, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing that if I were doing other shows, like I was, if I were doing other shows, I could still do it. It wasn't like I didn't have a contract with them. It was just like, can you do this episode in next week? I'm like, yeah. Um, and so that was just, that's what it was. It was really a thing. That's where I met Matthew Carlson also, who did uh, Gene Pool. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, Linwood is a really unique TV guy. He's a really unique writer. He has, he looks at everything from a, just a fantastically side view. Um, and so that was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's right. funny to me because having an English background, having a dramatic background, how much of that would you say has informed your ability to play particularly deft and literate characters? Oh, I don't know. I I I, I, I doubt it. I I don't know that the, it had much. I think that what helped is I it's I think it's more knowing where the joke is in a line, mm -hmm. which is and so it it it, it has I maybe not as much to do with the. I mean, I think to your point, I guess maybe if if a, if there's a joke that is not necessarily even about literature, but is a very literate joke, um, I can warm to those pretty easily. I, I think that's why. Yeah, you you definitely have a, a a great timing for that sort of stuff to be able to to find the joke in the line and be able to deliver it with some great comedic right. timing. Um, well, so after, after Malcolm Middle, uh, I know you were in John Frankenheimer's last film, uh, Path to War, yeah. uh, for HBO. Uh, now yeah. I had heard on a previous podcast that it wasn't the best experience just based on the fact that it was kind of, you know, you didn't get to really dive into the character as much because it was such an ensemble. Yeah, that's right. But also John didn't like me very much. And when, when, and John was a sort of old, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love John Frankenheimer. You know, I can make a very spirited defense of even of things like Reindeer Game. But, I mean, The Train is just a stone-cold masterpiece, right? Mm -hmm. Second is, is yeah, these are great. These Amazing, are great films. yeah. Even films that are kind of silly, like Manchurian Candidate, are really great. But, I, you know, I, it was not fun because he really kind of actively did not like me. Hmm. Um, and apparently he was sort of known for that. Uh, and the reason I say that is I was watching a movie. You've seen the documentary about the making of Island of Dr. Moreau. I've not actually. 
I'll have to check it it's, out. It's completely worth watching, it, and it's super fascinating. And I remember Feruza Balk was being interviewed, and she had said that because Frankenheimer came in and finished that film after it, you know, after the director was fired. Um, but it's it's a fat, it's an amazing documentary and just amazing twists and turns. Um, but Feruza Balk was being interviewed and said, you know, John Frankenheimer, he was just so nice when we first met him, and it's just so great. And then the first day of filming, it just became a monster. And that was very much my experience. He, he would do anything he, he could to make my day more difficult. Hmm. Um, but, and, you know, I was not on top of the call sheet. If I had been, he wouldn't have done that, right? That was Michael Gambon, and it was Alec, and it was Donald Sutherland, and it was Felicity Huffman. And, and so... You know, I would watch him, and it wasn't just me. I I would watch him actually really come after other actors who were much more senior to me, and and I just really didn't. I just didn't like it. Now, in his defense, I think he was pretty sick then, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, had I known that, I might have been more charitable. Uh, that said, I've never seen the movie, so I can't speak to it. But I really enjoyed working with Gambit. Yeah. No, totally. And, and, and it and holds Alex. up. It's a, it's a good movie, but uh, I just wish you were in more of it, you know? Yeah, I wish I was in less of it. I wish I was not in it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. It was, and it was just a, it was, also, it was a shoot that was, like, right after September 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe everybody was a bit on edge. Yeah, it was a, probably a tough time to kind of get back into filmmaking. I mean, I, re, I still remember the first Saturday Night Live done after 9-11, you know, when Paul Simon yeah. came on, things like that. I mean, it was very, uh, you know, it was a sensitive time and, and to, it was tough to be able to, to yeah. laugh and to make creative things and to kind of get back into the swing of things again. Yeah, it was. Yeah, no, totally. Because I actually want to switch gears a little bit uh, because I know in the you know early 2000s, you kind of had the string of uh, romantic comedies under your belt. Uh, you know, whether it be, you know, Made in Manhattan, Crazy Little Thing, The Treatment, uh, things like right. that next big thing. Uh, was that uh, kind of a deliberate choice where you had started to seek out roles that were kind of the romantic roles? Or was that something that just kind of came on your plate there? Uh, you know, I don't I don't think so. I think it was I don't think anything was nearly that strategic. I think they were just things that showed up. I remember Crazy Little Thing, which actually was called something else when we shot it. Um, I just thought the script was hilariously funny. Mm-hmm. And. So, uh, you know, and and to be paired with Jenny McCarthy seemed like just so crazy that it just might work. Yeah, um, totally. And uh, the treatment, I was just really, you know, excited to work um, with that cast, uh, with Fonka, and um, the, one of the greatest living English actors, whose name is escaping me right now, who's in probably five of your favorite 10 movies yeah um, no i know the actor i gotta look up his name but i i know who you're talking about because oh, yeah terrible why how in the name of god can i not remember his name um and anyway so i thought like it, i think it was more like kind of cast driven than it was like oh ian holm ian holm yeah i was uh, yeah. you you got the imdb the same time i did <laughs> and it's also i mean i get to hang out with I mean, I remember going to dinner with Ian and Fonka, and this speaks to what the you know what year it was. And we'd walk in, and particularly if there were young people in there, the restaurant would just go silent because suddenly 
Bilbo Baggins and an X-Men are walking. <laughs> and, I, you know, and I was like the guy carrying their bags. But it, like they were really like it, and they were great. Obviously, I worked with Fonka. I worked with Fonka again. Yeah. And we've we've remained really good friends. So that's so cool. I uh, I thought Crazy Little Thing was was really funny, and it was one of those movies that, uh, like you know, on paper you're like Jenny McCarthy and Chris Eigenman, but it really yeah. did work. And I'm kind of curious what it was like having Paul Dooley as your dad. Uh, look, Paul Dooley, I I loved right. I mean, I loved the guy, and he was, and he's also just a kind of a cowboy. He just shows up, and he does it. Like he's just like boom, done. Like <laughs> nice. Um, but also he, I've been told this, I have not asked Paul this because I haven't seen him in a long time, but you know how there's the six degrees to Kevin Bacon or whatever. Yeah. Um, there is to Buster Keaton, who is, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest comedian ever to stand in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and what people's Buster Keaton number is. And mine is two because Paul Dooley worked with Buster Keaton on a commercial. Oh, really? Yes. What, was this like, because Buster Keaton probably, what, he died in the 70s, I want to say? Late yeah. 60s, early 70s? Yeah, yeah, but he was doing, you know, he was doing like, it was like a, I don't know, like a cigarette commercial or something. Oh, wow. Paul was a, a, Paul was a kid and, and was in a commercial with him. That's incredible. I know. I feel very good about that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Buster Keaton really laid the foundation of what we consider to be modern comedy in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he yeah. had innovated with so many different styles and shooting techniques. I mean, I could talk forever about uh, what Buster Keaton's contributions to, to film in general have been. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, it's could incredible. Forever, we could talk forever just about the general. Like, oh, yeah. And you could even talk forever about, like, you know, any given five minutes of the general. Yeah, so, totally. Anyway, yeah, that was fun. I loved, I loved working with Paul. Um, it was, it was, it was a fun, I remember that being a really fun shoot and the producer of it was a really sweet woman who I heard just passed away, mm. but she was, she was a lovely woman. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a shame when people pass away, but it's, it's great that you at least got to work with them. And, and especially, you know, with the number of projects that you've worked on, you've probably got a pretty good network of people that you've met and interacted with and really kind of had a good impact with. Uh, so it's really cool yeah, to see I that happen. That. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, after having gone through the, the treatment and whatnot, uh, having, uh, you know, built the relationships with the people that you had, uh, what kind of made you want to get behind the camera and start becoming a writer-director? You know, after working with Fonka, I really, I really enjoyed working with her. And also, and there was a story I wanted to write about, you know, a fool hustler. And, and so I thought, well, maybe I could write that for Fonka. So I wrote it, and it was pretty simple. Funk was like, I want to do it. And then then financing, Amy Armstrong came up, up with the financing. And so uh, it, it, I don't, you know, there's no way to talk about this without sounding, you know, somewhat pretentious. So I, and I hope I don't, but it, to me, was just sort of a natural thing. I sort of wanted to write. I mean, I'd always been writing, but I, I, let's, let's see if, I, if we can do this. We put it together and did it one summer. Um, it's a great and, film. You know, it, it, I really enjoy you, it. It was, you know, it was right at the cusp. Again, speaking of cusp, so that was right at the cusp of uh, streaming and theatrical and physical media, right? Mm-hmm. So we had we had offers to to stream it, 
on hmm. certain, you know, television stations. And, and the offers were really pretty good. But we also sort of were like, no, we should get a theatrical release on this. And, you know, in a way that was dumb because more people would have seen it. But ultimately what happened is Sundance Channel also bought it. So it played on Sundance Channel all the time, which was great. But I remember, you know, all of us talking about, you know, do, do we really think that people are just going to make movies to have them be on, you know, a screen on in your in your living room or on a computer? Like, that's never going to happen. No one's just going to do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, uh. it's funny how that would kind of pan out, you know, because that was a turning point, specifically like 2006, 2007. Uh, was not only a turning point for physical media going from DVDs into Blu-ray and HD DVD, you know, of course, uh, Blu-ray right. winning that out. Uh, but also at the same time, you had this separation between physical media and digital media. Uh, you know, what with Netflix starting streaming, iTunes started uh, offering downloads of things. So right. it really was a turning point in the industry. Um, yeah, I think it, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I look back at that and it seems like a million years. Yeah, it, it is crazy because it's not that long ago. You know, it's about 13 years ago, no. but it uh, it definitely feels like another time, you know, yeah, another yeah. era. Um, I am kind of curious, though, about kind of your screenwriting process because I think you're an amazing writer and you've got a way to uh, really tap into the minds of your characters. Uh, so I'm kind of curious how long it took you to break the script for uh, Turn the River. Was that something you kind of had in your mind or did it take a little while to get into it? Um. You know, it didn't take me that long to write it. I think it took me, I, I think it, I wrote it over a winter. And cause we have a little place in upstate New York. And so I remember going up there and and writing it up there. Um, but I, I tend, like, I don't outline because I can't. Because it, it, for whatever reason, nothing comes of it. Like, for me, when I outline, I could just outline anything like oh suddenly they've moved to Hawaii and they're raising horses <laughs> and it's like well um, for me it's a lot easier to just sit down and even if it isn't a scene that I know where it is yet if I don't know where I'm going then I can just write down and sit, sit down and write scenes I do find it super helpful for example um, never to finish a scene <laughs> when I'm writing like don't don't and when the scene ends, don't quit writing when the scene is over because that's that's just making a hard thing harder. Yeah. Um, and so I think even I think that's I'm, I'm stealing a Hemingway line or something. But he never <laughs> he's never finished. He, he would always quit writing in the middle of a paragraph so that you know where you're going when you sit down the next day. I like that. Um, it's it's probably right. helpful for for anybody who's looking to to start screenwriting. I'd actually heard that before. Uh, which is that you want to kind of leave the script or wherever you're going to break for the day, uh, you know, midway through a thought. So you can at least kind of pick up yeah. where you left off and, and at least yeah. have something to go off of the next day. Yeah. I mean, so I do little things like that. I do keep, you know, I will have it. Uh, I'll keep a journal of what I'm writing so that I can just write down something that's coming up later or a thought about something, but I always put a date by it. I always write down the date of when I had it, which sounds weird, but somehow I find it really helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. I think that's a, that's a really solid tip there. Uh, I'm kind of curious about, you know, how you write. Do you find that you write better uh, when you're kind of secluded? Do you listen to music? Do you have any particular uh, little writing habits that you do? Uh, I always type right into the computer. I don't write longhand, and I do not listen to anything. Because if I listen to stuff, I just get distracted. 
Yeah. Um, and so for whatever reason, my brain will just try to build narrative. Like it'll listen to whatever story is in front of it. So if it's a song, it will just be listening to the song. Like I know Amy Sherman Palladino, who's writing, who did Gilmore Girls mm-hmm. um, and is now doing Maisel. I know that she writes with um, movies on in the background, often Woody Allen movies mm-hmm. in the background, which to me is, is, is insane. Like, I don't know how she gets anything done, <laughs> um, but that's just, that's just the way she does it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that. And, and also you sort of, you sort of know, you know, at least I know, I think everybody knows when they're writing, like, oh, uh, you know what? I'm going down a blind alley. And maybe I have to go down the blind alley and maybe I just have to do it and discover, yeah, this is wrong. Um, but I know that this is not going to, I know that this is wrong. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of that, like I think for me. Um, I mm-hmm. also don't write, I, I try not, I can't write all day. You know, I can write a little bit in the morning and a little bit in the afternoon. Yeah. Do you normally um, set a schedule for yourself and just kind of start at it or, or what's your work ethic when it comes to, to that? I mean, I do try to, I, uh, um, I'm much better in the morning than I'm in the afternoon. So I try to get, you know, I have a little office in Brooklyn, so I try to get there as early as I can. I mean, I have a, a young boy, so it used to be that I had to walk him to school. Now I walk myself, which is sort of heartbreaking, but, mm-hmm. um, I would walk him to school and then I just keep walking to my office. Um, yeah. So that, that was sort of the, the rhythm of that day. That's It's nice to be able to kind of, you know, ease into your morning, kind of, you know, get your son off to school and then just kind of, you know, crank it out and start getting the ideas yeah. flowing. Yeah. And and obviously, you know, don't be on the Internet. Yeah. It's a big distraction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to um, ask, even if you some people don't even have Wi-Fi in their offices, they just cut it out altogether. I wasn't sure if you went that uh, deep there. I uh, I wish I could say I was that strong and bold. I am not. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, but and, but then I mean, everybody has their own way. Like I see people in, you know, a lot of my friends write in coffee houses, and I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would get too distracted. There's t- too many things going on, you know. Well, just people talking, like, and oh, well, oh, partially because when I'm writing, I always just talk to myself. Oh so, yeah. Right. I'm always talking to myself, so it's. I don't need to be talking to myself and I don't think anybody wants me in a coffee shop talking to myself. <laughs> yeah. It might, might be a little disturbing, although you could just wear a Bluetooth headset and kind of disguise a little yeah, bit and pretend you're on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Um, now just uh, a couple more questions about uh, turn the river because I did, uh, I think it's just such a great debut feature uh, you know, specifically what was involved with the post-production because it was a movie shot on film. Uh, what was that like kind of going into, were you, uh, intimately involved in the editing or, or any of the post-production of that film? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was the, so I said, I have a, a little house up in, uh, in New York. Uh, the editor, Michael Hay also had a house up there, um, on the other side of the Hudson River. So we would meet, we found, a, a place to set up. Um, an editing bay in Kingston, New York. And then we spent just a couple weeks up there basically alone, just cutting it and cutting it and cutting it until we thought we had it. And then we came back into New York City and and posted it up at one of the houses in New York. Um, but it was a really nice way of, of doing it. 
Yeah. I, I mean, mean it, it's it. just well put together. You know, it's a well-edited film. Yeah, no, I think Mike did a great job. I really do. And and also, i got to give Mike credit also for um, coming up with the soundtrack. I was um, just about to ask about how you tap uh, clogs for the soundtrack. So, you know, we were doing a bunch of, you know, I did have to, we did have temp on it. I, I didn't want to have temp music, but it was just inevitable, particularly with the pool shots. I was like, we need to start putting temp on this. And... And at the same time, I think we we both were maybe listening to the national, mm-hmm. um, and then there was one piece that just worked really well. And Mike is really good about music; like music is really his thing. So he had just very, 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 very obscure stuff in the temp track. <laughs> but there was just one piece that worked incredibly well, and it was a clogs thing. Clogs is an offshoot of the yeah of the national Bryson Aaron Dresner, right. Um, and so we, we just reached out to them and asked them if they'd like to do the, do the score of it. And they said, yeah. And I was like, great. And it was, it was just as easy as that. And then we would send them at, once we walked, we would, we showed them, we, you know, showed them the whole thing and then we just send them scenes and let them have it. Yeah. Um, and now they're doing a lot of, of scores. Oh yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, they've definitely been pretty place. prolific with their output. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you listen to their the album that came out right after, um, and this was totally fine. It was part of the deal because we didn't have any money to pay them, really. So we just paid them some bare bones thing that we we didn't like. There was some licensing deal where they could kind of hold a license on it um, mm-hmm. because we were. I think we were we were completely tapped out at this point. Um. So a lot. If you if you listen to the score and then listen to the album, you'll 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 see a lot of the same building blocks in it, which I think is sort of cool. Yeah, it's always cool to kind of see the sketches of something that would later turn right. into something else. Um, right. I don't know if you listen to LCD Sound System at all. Uh, also, a guy yeah. from from New York. Uh, he did a, a recording for Nike, uh, and it was forty five thirty three. Uh, which it's not actually 45 minutes long, but it was supposed to be a running track that would basically, you would soundtrack it to your, to your runs. And uh, pretty much that entire uh, track would later become uh, Sound of Silver, uh, his second album. Uh, so it's really interesting to see the kind of the sketches of some of that early work that would later be represented on a fully fledged album. Uh, so right. I can, I'm sure the same was with uh, Clogs there. So I'm actually really curious because I, I have not heard that album. So I'm going to have to do a little uh, side-by-side comparison there to, yeah. to listen to no, it. It's, it's pretty good. So I don't want to dive too much into personal projects that didn't pan out. Um, but I am kind of curious specifically because I followed Midnight Sun uh, from its wow. production. Uh, you know, it was yeah. one of those things that uh, back in probably around 2008, 2009 or so, I started to become like an IMDb hound and I, you know, started reading up all the movies that I had watched growing up. And uh, your name had come up about somebody that I was really interested in in seeing what other work they had accomplished. And at the time, uh, this movie was in pre-production and I was super excited and, you know, kind of following it through. uh, You know, ultimately, of course, we know that it didn't quite pan out. Um, but I think it's a really important thing to talk about just based on the fact that movies are really hard to get off the ground. You know, it is a very complicated thing to just make a movie and to get a cast and crew and financing and all of these different things assembled. 
so if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective about the whole process. Well, I mean, it's a movie that I've been trying to make for a really long time. And, you know, in the end, we had this kind of great cast. We had Jeffrey Eisenberg. We had Diane Kruger. Um, you know, we had, it was, it was just like, it, it, everything seemed to be going okay. Maybe not super good, but, but okay. And, you know, ultimately it blew up about four weeks before principal photography. Um, and, you know, we had basically filled out the whole cast at that point again. And, you know, there were a lot of like warning signs that I was very aware of. Um, there, there were, it was a very difficult movie to raise money for. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it, it lived in a spot that made it even more difficult where it was at a budget, a price point that you actually aren't getting a huge amount of value for the amount of money you're putting into it. It either needed to be much less, which it couldn't be, or much more, which wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's just, it's just one of those films that that happens. It's a, it's a very difficult lesson to learn. Um, and it was just, a, and it, it was not, you know, it, it, it fell apart because ultimately the money we thought that was there was not there, which yeah. that, but that story is often told. That is not uncommon, mm-hmm. but what is a little bit uncommon is you find that out at the 11th hour. Usually you find that out. Hopefully you find that out in the sixth hour. Yeah. Don't find it out at the 11th hour. So I felt terrible for everybody involved, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just looked bad for everybody. Yeah. And everybody assumed blame when nobody should have assumed blame. It, it, you know, like actors thought, oh my God, was it all, was it our fault? Like, is, you know, could we not get the finance? And it's like, no, 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 no. It it all happened on the other side, mm-hmm. and we all got just caught in the crossfire. So, yeah. Um, but oh, it it sucked. I mean, it sucked. And yeah, the day that it blew up in Santa Fe, um, I was actually scheduled to go home for the weekend anyway, mm-hmm. which was just that part was lucky. So I, I had um, I, I was getting out of there when I heard from producers that I had to fire everybody Um you know, I had to bring everybody into the room, the crew, everybody, and say, look, we've all been fired, myself included. Hmm. Um, and then I was, but most of the crew lived there. Um, there were a few people from other parts of the, of the world, of the, of the country, but then I was able to get a, just out of town. I was flying from Santa Fe to Chicago, Chicago, New York. And as we were flying into Chicago, there was a terrible storm. And we got in really late and all like the, the airport had closed down. There was no flight going out. So I was never going to get back home that night, but there was no hotels to stay in either. Hmm. So I had to sleep on the floor of Chicago O'Hare. Oh my. Um, for the night I slept behind a ticket counter. Oh. And I was like, this, this is the hardest day I've had in a long time. Like I lost my movie. I'm sleeping on the floor of an airport. And I remember like airports, during the day when there are lots of people in there, the air conditioning's on and it's perfectly pleasant. But when all the 
people leave, the air conditioning stays on. And it was so cold. I remember I was just freezing and chattering behind mm. the United ticket counter, you know, <laughs> wrapped up in whatever coat I had because I'd come out of the desert. So I wasn't, you know, it was just off. Oh, yeah. Um, so. No, it's heartbreaking. But, it really is, you know, because it seemed it, like it was going to be such a great film, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. I, you know, and, you know, that movie may surface again. Maybe it will appear, um, you know, but it, it, uh, it didn't. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things that I think that at least as a, as a person who's interested in film and the art of filmmaking, uh, you know, sometimes the things that don't pan out are just as important to study as the things that do work, uh, you know, because oh, I yeah. think it's it's really kind of understanding, okay, wow, this really, there's a machine that is this film and there's so many moving pieces to it right. uh, that if, you know, one of those pieces gets stuck in the, the cog of the, you know, wheel, it's just, you know, the whole thing can come apart. One of the things that made that film almost, well, so far impossible was location. Locations became just incredible, just, budget busting at every turn of the road. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when I get back, the first thing I did was sit down. I was like, I'm going to write a movie with just as limited number of locations as humanly possible. And I, I need it to be able to be shot for a dollar 50. Yeah. And so that's when I did seven in heaven where it was like, that's why that whole, the, the notion of like traveling to different places that look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not paying for another location. So that's how this is going to work. We're yeah. just going to, we're going to recycle these locations over and over and over again. We can redress them, but we can't change locations. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like one of the first ideas for that film. I was going to say it worked really well, just given the, the structure of that film. And uh, yeah. it, I, it, was it shot in Canada? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Shot outside of Toronto. Oh, interesting. So what uh, what made you want to shoot in Canada? Was it just the, the tax breaks, or was there something about Canada specifically? No, no, no. It was totally... It's They've always had great tax breaks, but uh, Universal and Blumhouse, who made the film, you know, they were always on the hunt for where... You know, they, they need to find the most... You know, the best tax breaks that they can find. There was a time when we were maybe going to shoot it in Cape Town, South Africa. Not because I need to oh, go wow. to Cape Town, South Africa, but because the, the tax rates are so good. Yeah. So that's why we shot up in, in Toronto, which was great. I love uh, Toronto's great. It's a city I've always liked. So that was easy. Definitely. I, I last time I was in Toronto was for an eighth grade field trip, if you can believe it. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah. Tor Toronto is a great city. I'd love to go back at some point. Uh, I am just really curious because I actually just rewatched Seven in Heaven last night. And uh, it's just it's so many questions, you know, it's, it's got such a, you know, riveting plot that, uh, it really kind of has you wondering like what's going on behind the surface, like what, what right. is happening here? Uh, right. so can you talk to me a little bit about the writing process for that? Is that something that uh, you developed over the course of a few years or just something that kind of came out? No, I was just like, keep this simple, like keep the locations. Like really it was all about like, I just need to keep this simple, but it was also, you know, I, I, I was, I was reading all sorts of stuff at the time, and and I I like the idea of of being lost but being in a place that you're really familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. I find that when that happens to me to be really unsettling, so I sort of wanted to dig around in that. Um, I liked, the, and then I just sort of started really liking the two characters, and so 
and then then I just sort of kind of went on. I mean, it's certainly a riff on Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And, right. And 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 so you know, it's a little structurally like that. It's certainly structurally like Dante a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I liked the idea. I mean, I was interested in, in you know. I remember when I was fifteen years old, sixteen years old. You know, my days could be sort of the same, but on the outside, but on the inside, they could be completely fucking different because you're just a churn of like, you're just trying to become an adult and it completely messes you up. Um, and so some days you think your best friend is not your best friend. Sometimes you think the girl that you love, you actually really don't love and she really don't want to be with and all that stuff happens. And it happens sometimes hourly. Yeah. So that was just stuff that I liked and I thought was really fun to play with. I'm curious because it was kind of a different direction for you uh, to go in writing wise than you had in, in previous projects. So I'm kind of curious what it was like for you kind of tapping into the mind of, of young teenagers. Was that kind of uh, a new direction for you uh, artistically or is that something you felt pretty in tune with? Uh, I, I, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm in tune with it. But then again, I, you know, the kids who came in, the young adults who came in were constantly being like, yeah, we don't say that anymore or no, we don't do that anymore. Or that just doesn't happen. So I'm like, okay, we'll change it then. That's fine. Um, but but the idea of it's very easy for me to remember what I was like when I was a young teenager. That's right there on the surface. So yeah, yeah. I think it's it's just such a cool project, and and it was just such a talented group of of young actors. I, I wasn't familiar with all of them, but I'm really excited to see what uh, what they're going to go up to because I mean they they yeah. really did a great job with uh, everything on screen no, and everything. They did. It's a really talented group. And uh, what um, was it like uh, directing Gary Cole? I mean, what a what a guy. I mean, you know, Gary and I had actually never, even though we, I had a place in L.A. and used to live there, and it was like almost next door to Gary. But Gary, I, I mean, Gary's in so many movies that I love, and I love Veep. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's just, he is an actor's actor. Like, he shows up, he nails it the first time, and then he sits in his chair and he picks up a, a really good book. <laughs> um, and then he hangs out over the weekend and, you know, go out to dinner and actually play golf, you know, so oh, he, nice. was, he, he was great. He was great. Yeah. He seems like a consummate professional, uh, actor. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, now I've always been really interested in the intersection of music and film. And I thought there were some really great song choices, uh, in seven in heaven. Uh, can you talk to me about, uh, the music supervisor? Uh, I think her name is, uh, Michaelia Simmons. I hope I'm pronouncing oh, yeah. that correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michaela. Yeah, she's. Uh, I can't remember the company she works for. But she's great, and like, you know, the editor of, of Turn the River just knew all sorts of stuff. Like, really, really great stuff. Um, and she was down in New York for a while. I would see her occasionally down here, but I think she went back up. But she just did. She just did a phenomenal job of finding stuff that both seemed appropriate, but didn't, you know, take you too far out of the movie. Yeah, um, definitely. So, I think it struck that which, balance, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it did. But, and also, um, uh, for the score, um, Peter Sillette did the score and Peter and I, he's a composer and a songwriter. And he and I had, I directed a play in New York a couple of years back and, I, I was, it was, I was, 
uh, we were talking about the score for the play, and we I'd sort of said I think it's this, this, and this. And Peter and I had never worked together before. We'd just been friends. It was the first time we worked together. And then he came to see a run through. Actually, he was sending me stuff that he was composing for the play, and I was like, yeah, that's great, that's great. And then he came to see a run through. And I saw him after, and he was just blanched. I was like, what's up? He's like, we're completely wrong. He's like, you're, com- you're, you're completely wrong. <laughs> this, this score will not work. I'm like, really? He's like, it will not work, trust me. And so he went away for two days and came back with a wildly different score. Just, I mean, completely different. Wow. And, and we threw it on the play, and it was all these sort of interstitial things that had to be have music in it. And... He was 100% right. He, you know, in many, I mean, look, the actors did a great job in that play, and the play is a good play. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, he saved the play. Like, had he let me do what I wanted to do, the play would have died. Wow. So, um, so ever since then, we've worked pretty well together. That is so cool. I, I love hearing stories like that because that really goes to show uh, what a collaborative thing sometimes these, these things can be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ultimately you may have a vision of something, um, but somebody else may see it a slightly different way. And, uh, you know, getting a chance to step out of your own perspective and your own you know mindset there and kind of seeing things from somebody else pers- uh, else's perspective, I think is really helpful in the creative process. Yeah, no, it is. And it's also really helpful to have somebody say you're just wrong. Flat yeah. Wrong. And, and honestly, like, don't even try to be right. You're wrong. Yeah, that is great. Uh, I am curious, because uh, I think, uh, does the character's name Jude come from Jude the Obscure? Yep. Okay. I, I figured as much, just based on your website, being a solid picture of Thomas Hardy's yep. Jude the Obscure. Yep. <laughs> great. It's, uh, it's, it's probably my favorite book. But oh, I think I, I read it differently than other people. I find it to be incredibly funny. Um. Other people don't find it funny. People find it really tragic, sad, unreadably sad. And, you know, people also, when it came out, thought it was basically the work of the devil. <laughs> yeah. And, but yeah, that's, that, you know, that, that's that. Uh, I am uh, personally midway through uh, actually listening to it in podcast form. Uh, comedian Michael Ian Black hosts a podcast called Obscure. And it is literally him reading the book and riffing on it alongside of it. He's, um, he's reading Jude? Yeah, Jude the Obscure. Yeah, he just finished it. Uh, in fact, uh-huh. last year at uh-huh. Sketchfest, he did a performance of it. He was midway through. I think we listened to Chapter 8. Uh, so I had to go well, back I mean, and, and listen to it. But yeah, it's well worth a listen. It's called uh, Obscure. That's, that's funny. So yeah, Michael Ian Black, um, they were all part of a comedy group that my composer worked with, too. Oh, The State? Um, yep. Uh, yeah, he was involved with the state, and he said he has stuff in their movies. He he pops up in those movies, and also he did Saving Sarah Silverman. Um, oh yeah, that? yeah, Saving Saving anyway. Silverman, yeah, yeah. Um, right. That's funny that he does that. Well, I guess I'm not the only one who finds it to be uproariously funny. Exactly. Well, the the funniest part about it is that in the beginning he is having this interplay with his wife, where his wife thinks this is the worst idea in the world. Uh, to to yeah. host a podcast about Jude the Obscure, but it oh, actually really? is, is riveting. It's it's well well worth your time. Although it does take you about twice as long to get through the book, just based on his uh, you know tangents there. But uh, pretty pretty funny stuff. Um, now I'm curious because Seven in Heaven was shot on digital um, versus yeah. uh, you know Turn the River being shot on film. Uh, what was that like? Kind of having that contrast there. Did you enjoy shooting on digital, or do you kind of prefer film? 
No, I had no problem with digital. Uh, Kareem Hussain, who's the cinematographer, was, you know, we were we worked really well together, and I hope to do another movie with him soon. So, uh, but no, I didn't, you know, there's just a lot of upside to it. Um, and I, you know, we could, I don't think you could have done this film for the amount of days that we had. I don't know if you could have done it on film. I mean, just be brutally honest. I don't think you could have. I mean, you mm-hmm. could have, but I don't know if it would have worked. Um, so, yeah, no, I didn't find it to be particularly, you, you know, much of a gear shift really at all. Mm-hmm. Um, did it help much with the post-production at all? Uh, kind of in the uh, yeah, editing I bay mean, and stuff like that? Well, but you're, it's, in editing, it'll always be the same. Cause you're always doing offline editing. So mm-hmm. even if you shot, even if you shot on film. So, you know, it, you know, we didn't shoot raw. We shot ProRes and had we shot raw, we would have had a lot more latitude, but that's more expensive and we didn't have it in the budget, so we couldn't shoot it. Yeah. Um, but no, I, you know, I was, I was, I was, you know, pleasantly, but um, I guess that's, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I had no problem with it. Yeah, no, definitely. It seems like a lot of uh, directors have embraced it. Obviously, there's somewhat of a rift in the filmmaking community where some directors are, you know, really championing film. And I think it's a great thing, but it is a tool at the end of the day. You know, you want to make sure that yeah. uh, does, does your project call for film, uh, you know, budget, I mean, that sort of stuff. Like, I would go see a 70 millimeter print of, say, Phantom Thread, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because that should be on film. Yeah. Um, but, but mine didn't. It does, most films don't really call for that, I, I don't think. Um, so. Yeah. Now, being that you have a couple of films under your belt, I'm kind of curious, you know, being a, a film school guy myself, uh, what's your opinion of auteur theory? Do you think it's a, you know, something that's valid or just an oversimplification? Well, because I come at it from being an actor for 25 years, I, I you know, I, I, there's no way around the fact that, that film is a collaborative experience, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't. You know, and and if I subscribed to that theory, I would have made a really shitty play in New York City because Peter wouldn't have been able to save my ass. Yeah. Right. Um. I I I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm a big fan of the best idea in the room wins. So, and there's a preciousness to that notion that I don't like particularly. Hmm. Yeah, and I think some of the best filmmakers that I've uh, heard in interviews have just openly admitted to just the fact that it is such a collaborative medium uh, that, you know, even when you do have somebody who is as stylistically singular as, say, like a Wes Anderson, uh, you know, they have all of these people, you know, set designers, uh, you know, DPs, everybody who's responsible for the look and the feel, uh, not just the director, um, so it does definitely right. kind of point it to being, you know, a very collaborative thing that everybody will play their part uh, to really get the finished product to look the way that it does. Right. So switching gears a little bit, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about your career and your, and your life, and uh, you've obviously had some really, really amazing films that, under your belt. Uh, I'm kind of curious about your opinions of, of things in terms of films and, and movies that you like. Um, what would you say right now you look for when you go out to watch a movie? Is there anything in particular? Or you just kind of pick whatever's there? Uh, I don't know if I pick whatever's there. I 
you, you know, for me, nothing is better. Um, you know, and, this, and it's hard to be, but nothing is better than being surprised, right? And it's hard to be surprised in our world right now because, you know, not, nothing this year was better than walking into Jojo Rabbit knowing very little about it. Mm, yeah. Nothing was better. That was just, I mean, I, to me, that's, I, I, I felt like a child again. Like going yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Like this is, I mean, I don't know. I I think for, that movie just it, it absolutely killed me. Um, it just killed. It still kills me. I've watched it three or four times. <laughs> yeah. I, I I can't get over the film, and I know it hits some people wrong. And there's some people who are like they just don't like it. Mm-hmm. They find it. They find it. You know, it 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 annoys them or whatever, whatever. whatever. I'm like, this is I, I I don't know. I stand in awe of that movie. I just can't. I can't believe. Um, so that's what I look for. I mean, yeah. I look for that. Yeah, I thought it was a great film. And I think that it's it's really cool to see a movie like that getting made, you know, that does, you know, on paper, uh, you know, it's like, okay, what's where is this going? But I think that's what takes you by surprise. You know, no, the less you know about it going into it, uh, the more enjoyable right. it may be. I mean, I, I like him a lot. I think Hunt for Wilder People is, a, is just a wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Um, but this just, I mean, it just took my breath away. Yeah. You know, I mean, to 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 an equal but slightly less degree, Parasite. I didn't know anything about Parasite when mm-hmm. I when I walked into the theater. Um, so that's what I look for. Yeah. Now, I I really like that because I think that, uh, you know, going in blind, like I think we as a culture have been so accustomed to watching trailers and the trailers yeah. themselves have started to give away more of the film than maybe what I'd like to know about uh, going into it. Uh, so I think there is a lot of benefit to just kind of showing up blindly to something and trying to just kind of be surprised by it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, you know, that's the thing, but you're right. There's just way too much information out there right now. But Now, when it comes to, you know, actually going to watch a movie, do you prefer to, to go to a theater to watch it? Do you sit down at yeah. home? What do you, what do you prefer? No, no. We live in Brooklyn and there are many very good movie theaters just blocks away. So we go that way. Nice. Um, I mean, we get, you know, we get screeners and we sometimes watch them, but by and large, we, uh, we go to the theaters. Yeah. I think, I think there is something unique about seeing a movie on the big screen. You know, when, when I saw Metropolitan in Barcelona in, in January, that was the first time I'd seen them ever on the big screen. And yeah. it was a different experience. You know, it really yeah. was. And it was pretty phenomenal to see these movies that I had, you know, seen on my you know, TV in my house. Uh, just, right. you know, in this enormous theater and, you know, to, to have you in the, you know, the cast and uh, Whit Stillman there. Uh, just it talks about the uh, participatory nature of films these these days. And I think it's it's important to be able to go and support the films that you like to go see. And uh, especially when there's this era of peak media where there's so much stuff being created that you just can't cut through the white noise. Uh, it is important to be able to go out and support those films that maybe would not have been made 10, 20 years ago. Right. And it's also nice to sit in the dark with a bunch of strangers and watch light and shadow be thrown up against a wall. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's it is a very unique experience. I forget who said uh, that uh, cinema is the church of the 20th century, uh, but it is very interesting to kind of see it, how everyone kind of gathers together. We all sit together in these yeah. pew rows and, you know, we just sit there and, and consume something and escape reality for a little bit. 
And yep. I think there's something very uh, transformative about the art it's of great. cinema like that. It's great. It's great. So um, I am curious uh, because you mentioned uh, you've you've got a son now. He's what about twelve years old? Yes, exactly. 12. So uh, have you introduced him to any of your work? Has he seen any of uh, any of your stuff yet? Uh, he's seen seven. He's seen seven. Having a bunch of times. Um, he was around for the shooting of it, so he was on set for a bunch of it. Um, oh, wow. He hasn't seen River, and he asked to, and I. I I don't, I mean, I don't, he can pretty much see whatever he wants to see. I just haven't, he hasn't seen that. I'm sure he will. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a good movie goer. We go to movies a lot together. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and it's always fun. You know, I remember growing up going to movies with my dad and uh, it was always a fun experience, you know, going out to the cinema and going to check something out. And, uh, yeah, it's always great to be able to do that. Yeah. No, it's great. So, yeah, uh, you'd mentioned kind of some of your favorite movies uh, so far, like, uh, you know, you mentioned Jojo Rabbit and, and Parasite. Uh, were those some of your favorites of 2019 or did you have some others that uh, you really enjoyed? Oh, 2019? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure uh, I haven't. I mean, I tried to see Marriage Story in a theater, but we were upstate. And so I'm sort of. I guess Netflix isn't going to put it back on screen. Um, you know, I was able to see Irishman on the screen, which I really loved. Yeah, um, it's great. It's I was great. I was here in in San Francisco. Scorsese came out at the Castro and uh, did a little introduction for that. And uh, right. I was unfortunately at the very front, at the left side, so my viewing angle was yeah. incredibly distorted for a nearly three hour film. Uh, so I ended up having to, to leave halfway through, which I felt really bad about. Uh, but I knew it was going to be on Netflix in the coming weeks. So, right. you know, can I sit through another hour and a half of this distorted film or no. can I just wait a little bit longer and, uh, and actually see it on TV? Yeah. You, that, it's right to leave in that situation, I think. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of great films and, uh, I was kind of curious about uh, specifically what you've been up to. I mean, obviously you're, you're continuing to write, I'm sure. Um, but do you have anything right now that uh, that you're really looking forward to doing? Any any projects that you got in the oven? We're setting up two of them, so I'm sort of loath to talk about them. But one of them is a movie, and one of them is a, a, a limited TV series. Oh yeah. So so we'll see. I mean, you know, the deals aren't done, and you know, one's big, obviously, the limited TV series, and one's small. Mm -hmm. um, it's another sort of genre picture. So, you know, the past couple of weeks have been about trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, I'm sure. And, yeah. and you know, I always hate to, to talk about projects before they're finalized. Uh, what is what is the quote? Uh, to talk about one's own desires is to also publicly admit to one's own failures. Okay. Uh, well, that is true in our business more and more, yes. Yeah, and especially just based on the fact that it is a fickle business and that, you know, deals right. can fall through. And uh, it is frustrating when that happens, but, uh, you know, it is kind of the nature of the business. Yeah, no, it is. It really is. And, and you know, that's what you signed on for, so you can't really complain too much. Yeah. Uh, now, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the uh, Criterion Collection? I mean, I'm such a fan of what they do. And obviously... They've just been, they've, they've been, um, they've just been really good to me. And I, I you know, they, I have a couple films in their collections. They invited me into the closet, which was a real, the, the Criterion Closet where you get to sort of look at all the films they have and actually walk out with them. Mm -hmm. um, they've, I've done, you know, commentary tracks for them. I see them a lot. Some of them live in my neighborhood. 
Hmm. Um, so, you know, and then I'm, I was certainly first in line for the Criterion channel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just really, I just think that, and I, but I've, you know, I've been sort of, sort of around them for, it feels like a really long time. And I, I just sort of feel lucky to know those guys and, and I'm really happy that they're in the world. Yeah, it, it's incredible what they've done. And, you know, looking back, you know, they started on Laserdisc in the 80s and, yeah. you know, just kind of getting special features in was like a revolutionary thing, you know, not just watching the film, right. but you see kind of the behind the scenes. Um, you know, I really love what the Criterion Collection uh, is doing, um, but it is also interesting because I think it highlights a little bit of an issue within the film community uh, because I think... You know, as much as I love what they do, in a perfect world, uh, a place like the Criterion Collection might not need to exist if the studios themselves were releasing the films. Uh, you right. know, but that is, but that you know, the, the Scorpion and the Frog, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, studio is going to do what the studio is going to do. So there's no, you know, there's no. Again, you can't be. I mean, yeah, you're 100 percent right, but they're never going to do that. Um, and so it takes somebody like Criterion to stay up to stay in and figure out, okay, well, how can we give these titles um, their due and how can we do it in a way that is um, really respectful of the title of the film? And so, and they work really hard at, at everything. I mean, up to and including a friend of mine, the painter, and he just finished painting um, the box, you know, a portrait that will become the box cover of Paul Dano's, um, a oh, wildlife, uh, wildlife. Yeah. yeah I just I saw mean, that guy like, announced. Yeah. And, but I mean, you know, he's a Duncan Hannah's like a, he's a really known painter and you know, like, like that's taking care with stuff right there. Like you mm -hmm. do that, you really are, you're really taking care, which is just fantastic to see. And it's incredible the detailed work that goes into film preservation, uh, you know, using stuff like digital ice, you know, being able right. to, you know, scan in the, the film and, and clean it up. And, you yeah. know, there's an amazing, I think it's on uh, YouTube, you can watch it. It was a restoration that they did of a Hitchcock film, Foreign Correspondent. And yeah. uh, just seeing the amount of work that goes into frame by frame by frame, right. removing no, specs you know, and all I've, that stuff. I've been up there and watched them do that with different films. And it is, I mean, they, it is painstaking and it's amazing. Um, so. Yeah, it's, anyway. it's pretty incredible. And I, you know. It really is. Criterion Collection for me is like the top tier of home releases, but. Uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't call out uh, some of the other groups, like uh, there's Kino Lorber, Twilight Kino Time, Lorber, yeah, yeah I, Arrow. I, I, and Kino Lorber's fantastic because you can get stuff that you just you you just you just don't find mm -hmm. other places. I mean, um, I'm trying to think what I just got from them. Um, oh, it's that Elliot Gould movie with that amazing shootout in the market. Um, busting. Uh, Busting is an amazing film. Um, I don't know if I've seen that one. I'm going to have to look it up. And then there's a, uh, I also got a Gene, Gene Hackman. Um, oh, it, Rawhide? What is it? Oh, it's a, it's a super weird movie. Um, oh, it's not, I don't have, I'm not at my computer, so I can't look it up. Um, Hello from the future. The film to which Chris is referring is Prime Cut. 
it's a crazy movie. I'm going to have to, yeah, check it out. Because I think Kino does a lot of films. Like, obviously, Criterion has a certain caliber of film that they want. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Kino Lorber as well, you know, they, they have a lot of reputable films. But they also are willing to go into... Uh, a little bit of the films that maybe weren't as well received initially. Oh yeah, and can and can be more genre and be more yeah. pulpy and 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 it's great. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been such an honor to be able to to speak with you and to kind of pick no, your brain you. about things. It's been super enjoyable. Um, and if you're missing stuff or if if you know stuff was unclear, you have my phone number. Fantastic. Uh, so before we go, I wanted to say, is there anything you'd like to, to plug? Obviously, uh, if you're listening, definitely check out Seven and a Heaven on Netflix. A great, great movie. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, plug here? I think we've covered it. If anything we spoke about sparked anybody's interest, except for the stuff that you can't find, go find the other stuff. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be able to talk with you here and uh, and hear your perspective on everything. I hope uh, you enjoy the rest of your evening here. And uh, thank yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you take care. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. up my conversation with Chris Eigeman. Thanks again to Chris for making time for this podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him and look forward to whatever projects he's got cooking in the oven. Special thanks to David Owen, Cole Stratton, and Janet Varney for founding San Francisco Sketchfest and for putting together a double screening of Metropolitan and Barcelona for the 2020 Sketchfest. I'm not super active on social media, but if anyone wants to connect, I'm AWOL on Twitter and Instagram. That's A for Alexander and Wool, my last name, W-O-E-L-L, AWOL on Twitter and Instagram. The tracks you've heard on today's podcast are Seven Hours With You by Cat System Corp, as well as two tracks from Dinosaurus Rex, So Real and VRN DVR. These are tracks not found on Apple Music, Spotify, or other streaming services, so head on over to Bandcamp to support these artists directly. This podcast may not have weekly episodes just yet, but stay tuned for episode two. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you next time.